Hello, my name is Yutha Scheidt. Yutha, how dare you talk? What? How dare you talk on this episode? I, but what have I done? You've, you've, you've had your time. Yeah. I just wanted to welcome them to our- No. No, you've had your time. Yes. This is episode 100. This is my episode. Now I'm going to do my fucking intro. Okay, yeah, yeah, sorry. Hello and welcome to Shite and Sound, a podcast where usually two comedians watch one of the masterpieces of world cinema and then follow it up with a critically reviled film that is similar in some way. On this episode, our 100th episode, we are doing something new. We are doing Films, Filmverit Films, where I, Film Sound Nicholas, make my co-host Yufa Shite watch two movies that I love. This episode, we're covering two movies from journeyman director Herbert Ross, The Last of Sheila, the most 70s group of actors imaginable gather on a yacht for a devious game that becomes an even more devious murder mystery. Now, second film this week is Pennies from Heaven, a musical romance about how musicals and romances lie to you. Just to get a bit of business out of the way first, and just to stress this, this is the beginning of a new mini-series within Shite and Sound film. Sorry, what what is it? Give us the name again. Films, Filmverit Films. Perfect, I love it. Films, Favourite Films, Filmverit Films, Mm -hmm. uh, part one. And so retrospectively, I must name the My Choice episode. Uh, 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 from episode 50 yeah. as Shite's Sound Sights <coughs> and retrospectively uh, Ben McGugan's offering of Pink Floyd's The Wall as uh, McGugan's McGooden <coughs> Movie Googan's. I'm working on it. We'll yeah, get yeah, him we'll, out. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep working on that it, one. It feels bad to name that one in his absence. Check out his podcast. And Every effing restaurant on Dominion Road. Finn's been on it. It is a good episode of a podcast, something you are semi-used to on this here feed. If you want to hear me talk about uh, a burger or my fucked up eating habits, you can listen to every effing restaurant on Dominion Road on Mm. youtube.com slash Ben McGugan. So, Finn. Yes. Can I tell you how I was coming into this? Okay. What my state was. uh, Because I had seen Pennies from Heaven before. Yeah. On my recommendation, right? Direct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. While it may not sound like it because of the comic persona I have uh, chosen, uh, which is of all my worst and cruelest impulses, I do, in fact, respect you personally. (laughs) Uh, I I think you have a very refined and interesting uh, taste in film, and and I genuinely enjoy your company. Thank you so much. Uh, So, yeah, when you recommended a film to me, a musical starring... Stephen Martin, you know, in Inspector Clouseau himself, the torture monger. Could you okay, the torture scene from the Pink Panther cut yep. into the card counter. <laughs> Check it out. That's a super cut. Uh, 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 I'll be making. Follow me at, at YouthaLives on Twitter and Instagram and, and maybe uh Maybe YouTube, but anyway, Vimeo certainly. Um, 
I and Pennies from Heaven, which is a musical, it's a jukebox musical. I uh, I watched it and I enjoyed it, but to me, the first time it was a very uh, superficial. Uh, it it is it is still a surface level production. It is the surfaces it chooses and how it clashes them that it builds depth and interest. Mm. But the first time I just I kind of just quote unquote looked upon it as a musical. Right. Do you know what yeah. I mean? In the way that nine that we talked about last week is just a it's just a musical. Yes. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And so there were points in it where. If I didn't read the like irony, having the ch- you decided once once we decided that our our anniversaries fifty a hundred one fifty et cetera, but watching it and, and I got kind of ready last of Sheila I knew wasn't a musical and was kind of a drama uh, uh, and but like a comedy ish it, sure, it, yeah. it's it's a uh, it is a bit of a confection which is not not an insult. And I was really ready, I think I said it last week, to be like mildly amused by these films and kind of puzzled by why you like them. But what happened is that uh, I 100% got them. (laughs) Like, I I see what you see. I understand your love for Herbert Ross. This is not a fun piece of of combative media, because really all I have to say to set out my plow is that Finn, I'm very happy that you made me watch these films. Uh, I now have two new points of joy and light in my life. So let's now talk about both of those films in order and why they absolutely whip. Yeah. And why, if you enjoy this podcast, which you do, you should check both of them out. Yeah. And, and like, especially because I want, I want to talk about the very ending of The Last of Sheila. Which is yes. which? Which is a mystery movie, and I want to talk about how the mystery resolves. I really recommend watching it before listening to this episode. It is now easier to find than ever than it has been since the seventies. Yeah, it is easy to find. It is a joy to watch. It's good. So, Finn, somewhat arbitrarily, you assigned Last of Sheila the sound, and Penny yeah. was from Heaven shite, and that is because. A pennies from heaven is seen as a greater failure, right? Well, yeah, it uh, did not do well financially. It was, by and large, not particularly critically successful, and it was also like in the like career of Steve Martin. It is the- an anomaly well, in a it, career of like this is as much as an anomaly as him writing like a serious play, his or his collection of art. Yeah, you know, well, and it's also the first thing he did in his life essentially that was unsuccessful. Didn't he suck at working in that magic shop? Like, sure, but like maybe, but but, I, but, like, but like he, but he got a, but he got a job at Disneyland as a teenager. Yeah, you know, like he. If you've not read his autobiography, what's Born Standing Born, Up? Born Standing Up, yeah. which which he deliberately it is an autobiography of all of the years before he got successful because those are the interesting years of someone's life. It's short. It's funny. He's good. Yeah. If they, you like it, film, you can read it. In an afternoon. Yeah, and if you listen to the audiobook, he, play, he plays banjo on it as well. What order did you come to these in? And, and then, like, where does Last of Sheila... I just want to know how you met Last of Sheila, how this whole kind of... How much Herbert Ross have you seen now? Uh, I've seen five of his films now. 
I've, yeah. seen, I've seen these two. I've seen the Seven Percent Solution, which is his adaptation of of the book about uh, Sherlock Holmes yeah. being taken to meet uh, Sigmund Freud uh, to kick his uh, cocaine addiction. And so that is already yeah, uh, yeah and cutting uh, across genre, right? Yeah, because that, that's a period detective piece. Yes, it is part of that seventies thing of like doing Sherlock Holmes movies, but like not adapting original Conan Doyle stories and like. And like looking for new angles on the characters, like like Billy Wilder does in the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to bring up. I, I Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is a film I uh, love exists. Yeah, uh, w- without thinking it's uh, actually uh, successful. Uh, I, you know, I love the first like forty five minutes, uh, and then and then when we go to Scotland, it's, it's just a bunch of mucking around. I. I yeah, I I like the mucking around as well. The problem is is like, and it's clearly going for that sense of like most Sherlock Holmes were in fact short stories written to be read yeah. uh, uh, in in an hour in a magazine. Um, and like that was my first encounter. All of my early Sherlock Holmes was uh, the Jeremy Jeremy Brett on TV, Jeremy Brett films on TV, and just reading like the Speckled Band, right, which yeah. is like three thousand words long. And so Private Life is kind of two 50-minute long films back yes. to back. And the first is this uh, uh, charming and sincere uh, 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 exploration of like what it personally would be like to know Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it is a movie that is like basically about how Sherlock Holmes is gay and how that like changes his friendship with Watson once Watson realizes. Uh, ye- like and and the, the like scene where 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 Watson confronts him about it yeah. is like what what one of my favorite pieces of interaction between those two characters in like any piece of Holmes media. Her private life of Sherlock Holmes isn't uh, uh, puts the queer subtext too much in subtext, even though it is absolutely there. I I wish it was more obvious. That's one of my problems, but that's the first half. And then the second half is literally Sherlock Holmes versus the Loch Ness Monster yes. with Christopher Lee as Moriarty. Right? No, Christopher Lee as Mycroft. Yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Christopher Lee as Mycroft for like two scenes on one set. And it is good. They just absolutely, for whatever reason, do not match each other. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas at least my experience of these two films today, which both very deliberately are about clashing and interleaving and merging genre. And, Absolutely. And aesthetic, so literally in Penny's From Heaven's case, is how, like before, first time I saw Penny's From Heaven, I'd be like, uh, uh, I, I understand intellectually why all the musical numbers are lip synced to the original, very aged recordings, but you could do it differently. Yeah, like, do you know what I mean? Sure, it's an sure. aesthetic choice that's not in, inherent to it uh, in a way that, like, uh, Richard Linklater's Scanner Darkly is beautifully animated. Uh, uh, he could have made that film in live action. Right. But, like, no, Pennies from Heaven, this film is not Pennies from Heaven if it is new versions or them actually singing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and The Last of Sheila is kind of the same. So, John, could you talk me through it? It's in a more complex way, but... Yeah, so The Last of Sheila is a movie that was written by Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. Anthony Perkins being Norman Bates yes. uh, uh, from Psycho, who, who after that, he had been writing his whole life, but after that started getting writing work produced... 
and then like directed some things, including Psycho 4, yeah. which is either the best of, or the worst who you talk to. That's the one that actually just goes, it makes it a splatter film, you know? Uh, uh, and Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> who we talked about on, in our end of year special last yes. year, but I feel like best encapsulated by the fact that like Stephen Sondheim is such a good and talented man that he got the greatest honor, which is to be played by Bradley Whitford, open brackets, warm, nice, best kind of old white guy, mode, close brackets, as opposed to Bradley Whitford, open brackets, uh, a massive symbol of liberal patriarchy and racism, close brackets. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, it yes. is. It's written by them, and you can see both of them. Well, yeah, in it. yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I believe it is the only screenplay that Sondheim has a has a credit on. <laughs> it's at least the only non musical. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the thing I was I was pausing to think of is that he has written new songs for uh, adaptations of stuff he wrote on stage. Sure, yeah, uh, uh, but that is a that's an absolutely different thing. Yeah, and the movie is like sort of based on this series of, like, murder mystery dinner parties that the two of them used to, like, host for their friends. Yeah, like how Shark Boy uh, and Lava Girl is based on made-up stories. Richard Linklater's seven or eight-year-old... No, Robert Rodriguez. Who did I say? Richard Linklater. The two Austin R's. Yeah. Um, Robert... Racer Rodriguez. Yeah, Racer Rodriguez, his, like, seven or eight-year-old song would just be the stories he came out with while they were playing in their swimming pool. Yeah. This is... Like how Vin Diesel, The Last Witchfinder, is him literally making a film about his D&D character. This film, uh, its conception similar, absolutely nothing like either of those (laughs) films. Some of your friends are like, hey, these mysteries are pretty good. You you should do a movie. And Mm. they're like, yeah, sure, let's do a movie. And then they made a movie about how uh, everyone in show business is scum and we're all out to stab each other in the back. Yeah. And and, and it's a nightmare. Genuinely, they are all... Like, th- this is a ragtag group of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Cluedo suspects, yeah. really. But the one thing shared between all of them in, in the story that is kind of half escape plan and half then there were none, um, the, the only title that story has ever had, don't look it up. Uh, the thing that unites all uh, of, uh, the thing that unites all of Last of Sheila's characters is that they don't have souls. Sure, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're a ragtag group of people. They're all white because it was made in the 70s. But they're, they're like, they're godless. They're all Patrick Batemans, yeah. you know? So you got Richard Benjamin as Tom, who is a mildly down-on-his-luck screenwriter. Richard Benjamin is like one of those 70s guys where if you've seen American movies from the 70s, you're like, oh, yeah, he's in Catch-22. He's the lead of Westworld. He's, he's in The Sunshine Boys, also directed by Herbert Ross. Yeah. He, of course, directed uh, My Stepmother as an Alien. Thumbs up, buddy. Uh, I like it more than Finn, but mm. it is good. Right, uh, Finn? Mm. You love it. Mm. You love it. Uh, as his wife, Lee, you have uh, Joan Hackett, who not super familiar with, but was also in a, in a bunch of late 60s, 70s stuff. And is unfortunately kind of uh, the least prominent sure, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, of the group. She definitely gets, gets sidelined a bit. Well, she's the daughter in Minari in that the cast is absolutely ensemble, kind of everyone is equally the lead. You are the least equally the lead in yep. the way that there's an, yeah, there's an argument that, that that film is about the mum, the dad, the son, or the grandmother. 
you know, mm. that's true of this film about uh, his wife. Yeah. She is the daughter of some now dead rich Hollywood guy. And like, since Tom isn't working that much, they are both kind of living off of her dad's money. Then we have Diane Cannon as Christine. Everyone knows who Diane Cannon is. Uh, I don't think that, I think she is a bit of an inside film shit. You, sure, but you sure. will, you will, no, I just, yeah. I am aware that, that a service this podcast could offer is, uh, uh, is guiding young or fresh people into the world of being an absolute art film shit. So, her, so her, who is Diane Cannon? You'd recognize her. Yeah, she is one of the most recognizable American actresses of this era. You could argue she is the face of it in some ways, or at least the aesthetic. Yeah, her like most prominent role is in uh, Bob and Carolyn, Ted and Alice, where she plays Elliot Gould's wife. Uh, she is also in Death Trap, uh, The Anderson Tapes, uh, Heaven Can Wait, the, uh, the, the Warren Beatty movie, uh, Kangaroo Jack, she's apparently in. Oh, God, the, the, the film where the kangaroo speaks for one scene in a dream yeah. and, and never again in everyone, and, and uh, they only sold it on that scene, and it just turned out to be a bland crime thriller, uh, Kangaroo Jack. Correct, with uh, David Wenham. Uh, you got uh, Raquel Welch. And like iconic 60s and 70s sex symbol. And, and looking incredibly iconic and incredibly sexually symbolic in yes. this film. Uh, Di- uh, Diane Cannon is playing a character called Christine, who is an agent and is based on a famous Hollywood agent of the era called Sue Mingus. Yeah, and uh, combined with the, an evil car. Uh, yes. Then you have Raquel Welch playing Alice, who is a like a young ingenue. You got her husband and manager Anthony, played by Ian McShane, in like maybe his like what one of his like very early film roles. Yeah, this is one of McShane's first performances, mm. as you say. And I thought this was post Lovejoy. I thought Lovejoy started in the eight started in the seventies. Right. In fact, it started in the eighties. Oh, okay. Which, which, at least within the British psyche, and so much of his star persona is built on a Lovejoy, who was this kind of peak masculine TV hero. Who, who was kind of serious only fools and horses. He was this kind of cheeky, theatrical, chappy, like uh, uh, hard as nails, but uh, soft as butter kind of guy, uh, uh, always wheeling and dealing. And it's a, a product of its age and a genuinely charming show. Yeah, and, and he solves crimes or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he was like an antique dealer or something who yeah, yeah. solved crimes. Uh, uh, yeah. ha- have a look. And the interesting thing is, yeah, that's where his star persona comes from. And like all of his work since as Odin in American Gods, as uh, the, 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 what's his name? The, the head of the hotel in John Wick, the the head of the hotel in John Wick and uh, uh, as Al Swearingen and Deadwood are all him very deliberately, I think, uh, uh, weaponizing that star persona in very unique ways and seeing him before then where he is god i don't i would not leave him out in this film because he is fresh faced and so fresh he'll go like he will only taste good now but it is like the interesting thing is he's here this is ian mcshane yes uh, uh fully formed but he is a dolphin skinned 22 year old or maybe 30 uh, with incredibly like David Cassidy luxurious hair yeah, and like, statement like, Elvis sideburns. Yeah, and open button up shirts with a gold medallion dangling. <laughs> and it is like everyone in this film, except James Mason, sorry, hot as shit. Sure. Um, James Mason as Philip, who is 
a like mostly over the hill former big shot film director who now directs dog food commercials uh, i would very much call him a james mason type you know uh, like yes. this character doesn't exist without him also being humbert humbert you know yes for we'll, reasons we'll... we will really get into to emphasize finn's point Go and watch these films. You'll have a good time. Both are just on two hours. Then come back. Yeah. Because they're both based on surprise and we are going to spoil them. Yeah. I mean, the final member of the main cast is James Coburn as Clinton Green, a film producer who is obsessed with games and likes to play God and mess in other people's lives. There's a real sense of like ed harris in the truman show absolutely this, yeah as well but like ed harris of the truman show thinks he is making art yeah james coburn and this is just fucking oh, with people you yeah, know and I, yeah. I was gonna say there's equally like jigsaw to him yeah. and the film opens with sheila green the wife of james coburn she is leaving a party she is storming out in a huff and goes like walking out onto the streets of bel-air we see some perspective shots from a car which hits her and kills her. Then it cuts to one year later, where all of these characters I've mentioned, they are all receiving letters from James Coburn. Yeah. Do they know? They all know they're from James Coburn? They're, yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, it just, this is one of those setups where it feels like it could be, you know, it's all messages that look like they're from each other, or like it's a psycho real right, thing. Yeah. And anyway. They all know it's James Coburn, and, yeah. and he is saying, come and spend a week on my yacht. We'll play some games together. It'll be a great time. Yeah, things will immediately be tense and psychosexual, Mm -hmm. and then there will be like a run uh, uh, where the last hour of the film is like three incredible 20-minute long (laughs) scenes between uh, uh, stars of the era, by the way. Uh, Yes. Uh, 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 And, you know, uh, uh, white tie optional. They all show up to his yacht, which is called Sheila, which is anchored off of the coast of italy or, 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 or uh, france it's in like the french riviera yeah it might literally be can but mm. it, it, it's a can like area at the very least yeah or like it's either can or somewhere in the trip to france you know yeah and so the very first thing that clinton does when they all get there is he lines them up under the boat and takes a polaroid photograph of them mm. he takes them on the boat and he explains what the game will be mm. he tells them over lunch that the game is called the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game. And... Oh, it, and it's so good, yeah, you guys. And, and, and all of these, like, fucking Hollywood people, instead of being horrified that, that, <laughs> that this guy is, like, turning his wife's death into a game, they're all like, oh, goody, that sounds like fun. Well, because they have... Because they're godless, right? They, they're just... They are shells. Yeah. Uh, he hands each one of them... A, a, a like business card sized piece of paper and like each each one of them has an accusation on it and in the modern day they seem to vary in impact a lot like sure. one oh, one says you are a homosexual yeah. and one, one says you are a shoplifter and one says you're a child molester no, it, it says you are a little child molester a l- yeah you are a little child uh, it's, it's not that bad it's just a little, it's a little. Uh, 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 but <laughs> And it is, of course, like, it only adds to it that at the time, clearly the sense was each of these crimes is somewhat equal. Mm. And watching it from a modern perspective where you're like, no matter what some pedophiles think, (laughs) being a pedophile is not the same as being queer. Or a shoplifter. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And do you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. And 
the the new angle that throws on it, this was the point where I was like, the fact that the film was holding that weight and not buckling, I was like, you were, you, <laughs> Perkins, I, I get, Perkins and Sondheim, two gay men, uh, I believe, yeah, or yes. uh, at, at the very least bi or pansexual. Uh, uh, what is Herbert Ross, uh, right? Uh, he, he, he was married to two different women. So I'm, I'm oh, on the so TV yeah, show. Really? Yeah. Just a flaming gay, it yeah. sounds like. I mean, look, he, 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 he was a dancer in the forties, you know, <laughs> who, 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 is, who can tell? I, and to be clear, that is funny because in that era, dance and theater was where, uh, 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 queer people uh, and, and usually cis gay people were the most accepted, which is why we relate theatrical camp and homosexuality. Sure. We're not just, it's not that all dancers are gay. It is just that there was a period of time that that is, has continued where more dancers were gay because that's where gay people felt safe. It's like racists and the police. One of the major criticisms that people make of this film and like, especially recently is accusations of, of being homophobic, morally conflating homosexuality and like pedophilia or murder. Mm. And I think the fact that it was written by two semi open gay men, mm. like, yeah, does do a fair bit to counter that. It certainly means people should engage with it in, in more detail. And I think that that more rigorous examination would show that within the restrictions of its time, they are working to make something that is not homophobic. Yes. And in fact, at points celebrates not being straight. Mm. In the scene where everyone gets their cards, we do not see who has which card. We just see close-ups of like four of the cards, yeah. which is like homosexual, informer, and then like two of the other ones. What Clinton says is like, each of you now has a secret, and each night we will go ashore in a different place, and there will be a game and during each of those games, you can figure out one of the person's secrets. There will be clues to which person has which card. And he sets it up like it's just a fun little game you're playing. Some fucking rounds, yeah, you know? to discover these, like, fun little made-up secrets they all have. Mm. Or, or, like, in con- like, oh, it doesn't, you know, like, oh, you're, you're a shoplifter. How funny, you know? Yeah. And it stays that way through through to the end. It's a, it's 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 a light comedy. Mm. I compared it early on to it's a mad 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 world. The first night of the game, they go ashore and they are trying to find clues to a shoplifter. Each of them has been given a silver key by Clinton, and each key is engraved on the side with words Sterling eighteen K. They are all dropped in this town on the French Riviera, and basically have to run around and try and and, and try and like discover what the key is too. The like other main rule that Clinton lays out is uh, the game ends each night when the person who holds the card that everyone is looking for the clues for figures out the clue. So if the person holding the shoplifter card was to discover the shoplifter clues first, mm. then no one else would be able to find it out. On the first night, the people who figure it out are Tom and Lee and Philip. Richard Benjamin, Joan Hackett, and James Mason. And it turns out that James Mason has the shoplifter card, and so the, and so the game is done once he figures it out. Uh, How does he figure it out? He realizes that it's a key to a hotel room. It says Sterling 18K. Yeah, and, uh, and gold can be 18K, which is the hotel room. Yes. And while those three find out the answer, Alice, Anthony, and Christine, uh, they don't get it. One of them gets the clue uh, mixed up and accidentally runs into a lesbian bar for a while. Uh, that like, like I will, I will almost certainly say this about uh, nigh on every scene we watch, but 
great bit. Yeah. <laughs> Diane Cannon uh, gets mistaken for a prostitute for the entire night because she is carrying a key to a hotel room mm-hmm. and is uh, walking around very cleavagey. And then uh, Raquel Welch's character does not participate at all. And she goes and sits at a, at, at a cafe and has a, has like a glass of sherry or something. Yeah. She just gets to go and pose for a bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, essentially. Uh, it, uh, IMO, good, good, good content. I believe in. Yeah, uh, yeah. After the game is over for the night, there is like a handheld shot of the camera, like walking up the side of this like open air cafe, pulling apart a beaded curtain and, and looking at Raquel Welch. Yeah, and and, and she like turns away and they and they have a sort of like vague conversation. They're like, oh, not not here. We'll see each other later. And it is like this is when Ross's obsession with how we look at faces comes into it because they are looking through these kind of broken slits mm. like the, these gaps and the the angles on their faces keep shifting so sometimes we're just you know they're not their mouth is just in shadow or we're just looking at someone's eyes or just their nose and mouth and it is like he is dissecting their bodies and personalities like yeah. It's, 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 it's real. Like it becomes as much about the reveal of just how hopeless the situation is as well. It is as well as it is about plot material. And then uh, back on board the ship, we get another scene of uh, Raquel Welch talking to this mystery person. This mystery person is, is being uh, hidden in shadow. We're seeing through their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That their identity is oh, hidden, sure. and there are a couple of other times I thought in that scene, but definitely elsewhere, where they are just essentially just a shadow, yeah. just a, just a black shape. It's 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 like it's very quickly playing the mystery convention of like, oh, who do you think this is? Mm, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And in the scene, we learn that Raquel Welch's character is cheating on her husband with this mystery person. And and this is where Alice shows the camera that she has the you are a homosexual card. Yeah. And and she and she asks the mystery person what card they have and they refuse to tell her. And she says that the reason she set out of the game that night is because when she was younger and new in Hollywood, she had stolen a like a like expensive coat from a store. Yeah. And she'd been arrested for it. And Clinton was the one who had who had like bailed her out. Oh, and, yeah. and, and helped to cover it up. So she knew when it was announced, you're all looking for a shoplifter, that Clinton had dirt on all of them and, and was using the game to 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 give that stuff out in the open. It's certainly a way to juice up an evening's fun, but does very much seem to be, uh, oh, I want to say, asking for conflict. Oh, look, it's, 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 it, is, it is a bit rude. And it would have been uh, better for everyone involved if he had not done that. Oh, yeah. No, no. He is, um, uh, he is at best like a, um, obstacle in, uh, yes. in this story, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. On the second day, everyone's like chilling out on the deck, having a nice time. Clinton is, uh, working golf balls off, off the roof of his yacht into the ocean. <laughs> And, I, I, incredibly uh, uh, Bond villain. Yeah. Well, Anthony is like obsequiously lying on the ground and putting the golf balls on the tee for him. Oh, yeah. And uh, the the strong vibe is that the end of the scene will be like him hitting the golf ball out of a tee in his mouth, you know? Like, sure, yeah. There, there is a uh, psychosexuality to mm-hmm. this, possibly. Sure. But the scene actually ends with Anthony asking 
at Clinton for an associate producership on the film they're, they're going to be making with Ellis. Which is played as like a just, I've got nothing, please give me anything. Yeah. And like the very fact that this make me an associate producer on your feature is what he thinks begging on his knees is. Yeah. Is, uh, uh, yet another insight into the just abject void at the center of these people. Yeah. And Clinton responds by, by saying, boo hoo, boo hoo. I mean, uh, laughing and walking away. Uh, letting letting the golf club uh, drop onto Ian McShane, which is a call. Uh, earlier, Ian McShane uh, mocked someone with yeah. "boo hoo, boo hoo." Uh, yeah, on the first night when everyone is in their rooms, Anthony and Alice are having a having an argument while while Anthony is lying on his bed with a radio and headphones on, with two hand puppets on his hands. Yeah, oh, the, these hand puppets. Integral. Inte- like, describe them for me. Cause, uh, you know, shitty triangles of cloth with, like, faces and arms and stuff on them. Yeah. It's, what, what, one of them looks like a clown. The other one looks like a worse clown. Yeah. If that one looks like a, like, bad fan tribute to David Bowie as the Harlequin in the Ashes to Ashes era, and the other looks like a... a the doll that the test card girl is holding in, in on old British television when they cut tonight was a picture of a girl with her clown teddy playing um noughts and crosses. If you know that image, that's what these two puppets look like. Right. And and with the puppets, what is he doing? He is making fun of Alice. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean she she quite like like it's cruel, yeah. right? She says something to him, and he, with the puppets, so it's going, oh, boo hoo, boo hoo. Yeah. And then it cuts from that scene to Clinton in his room, and you find out, oh, he has all of their rooms wired. Yeah, and he and he is listening in on all of them. And so when Clinton later says, oh, boo hoo, to Anthony, now Anthony sort of knows it that he was being listened in on. Well, and it is over that set of things from. Like the the first task, the shoplifting task, seeming to go a little wrong, but being like, it seems like a game that goes wrong. Yeah. And then there is like the darkness of the argument and mocking the argument to seeing that he's wiring them mm. and then to see like their desperation in the golf before the next game is like, we now know that this by design is going to go poorly. Like you feel like this is when it becomes a Nagira plot. This is when I said, oh, this is, and then there were none or slash saw. And you said, I have no interest in the saw franchise. Uh, It was just our usual banter. (laughs) Um, But it is the sense of like, this is where for me, because we have this, not so much black as dry comedy mm. about the superficiality of Hollywood people. And then there is this creeping real sense of like crime fiction, like uh, someone is going to get hurt. Someone yeah. it, That's when you know someone is going to die. What I think both of these movies are doing in different ways is like taking film genres, which are supposed to make you feel safe and then, and then yes. doing enough like, genuinely subversive stuff with them you like cannot feel safe inside them well and not doing that by being like oh this is lame uh, the subversion is entirely within the rules yes uh, of, of if that makes sense in the way that it is like oh yeah this is a crime thing this all makes sense but like the threat the reason it feels so electric and new for me in that moment is because of how 
they have built a film, the, the script and the direction and the performances, where the transition from this is people in Hollywood are superficial, there are real stakes, someone is going to die, and those feel immediately like perfect bed partners, even though in a way that like, you know, a Die Hard is a Christmas film ism is like, just a statement uh, at worst about people not understanding that films can be more than one genre. Sure. But, but action adventure films are full of action and adventure at the same time. They're a mix. But whereas this is like layers, it is like a phyllo pastry. And it is just so uh, uh, that he lands it just feels so amazing. Yeah. While everyone is out on deck, Clinton decides he's going to go snorkeling for a bit. So he gets him a water and then uh, Christine also gets him water and she is like floating around on, on, well, it's not, a, it's not a water bed. It's like a, a like a, a pool, like chair. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, she, she, she is lying on the back of one of those and, and, and like, yeah. Like, like, like Leo in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, just, 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 sort of, just sort of floating aimlessly. And then we get another one of those first-person shots sneaking through the bowels of a ship while all the crew are asleep and going down into the engine room and turning the propellers on while Clinton and Christine are in the water. There is some great underwater photography where it looks like Christine's actually going to be sucked yeah. into the, the propeller blades. And, and, and such is the setup they have done on you as an audience member and that you're like, oh, it makes perfect sense that the next step is two of them are just going to get shredded Absolutely. in front of me. Yeah. This is going to be a, a Jaws moment, you know? Yeah. I'm about to see water go red. But it is not yet that sort of movie, and so... It- oh, and even when it does become that, sure, it becomes yeah. that in a nuanced and new way that reflects both on its legacy and what it's trying to do. Like, to pick an example at random, the 2022 Alex Garland masterpiece <laughs> meme. Uh, Finn just rolled back in his chair, his eyes going up into his brain as he finally communes with his true self and realises that actually that film is as good as I think it is, which is excellent, rather than as good as he thinks it is, which is good, maybe quite good. The crew will come rushing out on the deck. They turn the engines off and Clinton and Christine are pulled out of the water. There is a great Diane Cannon scene where, where she is just soaking wet and just like clearly in shock from almost being ripped to shreds by propeller blades. And over the course of like 40 seconds, it is, is just like alternating rapidly between like catatonic and hysterical. It's a great bit of performance from her. It, 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 there is. And this is almost like the most... Apologies to repeat myself there, but it is like this is the point where we start rapidly switching between them. Sure. And yeah. that like her reaction seems to be her being like, ah, I'm in a crime film. No, I'm in a comedy. Fuck, fuck. And like mm. that the the mania is not knowing what the rules of the world are anymore. Yeah. In a in a way that f- it feels both character led and like actually interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so we know that that someone on the boat was trying to kill it left like either Christine or Clinton, but everyone else on the boat just thinks it was like malfunction or negligence by the crew. And so that night they have their second round of the game where they're looking for the homosexual. Mm. And so that game uh, takes place in an ancient abandoned monastery. And they're, 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 they're all dressed as monks. Yeah. It, it, it makes you genuinely wonder why more films aren't just, full of monks and i mean like benedetta is pulling a lot of duty this year 
but like a monk's robe, that statement rope, the hood. It looks good on everyone. Yeah, it's, I'm, it's inherently cinematic. I'm looking for, I'm, I looked at it and was genuinely like, oh yeah, I might take that up. <laughs> I might, I think I could, I could, do you think I would sue a tonsure? <laughs> no. No, uh, uh, that, uh, that single look said mm. no. Anyway, uh, as they're about to go to the island, there is, I think, my, my like favorite James Coburn scene of a movie where he is standing on on one of the like boats, being being like lower down into the water, and he's like giving a speech about the like person who sells him islands, and and like James Coburn is one of those guys like uh, John Houston, where they just have great, like, white hair and this craggy face and this mm, giant, mm, like, mm, smile mm. that takes up most of their face. Yeah, and it, it, he seems like a old apple <laughs> that that will crinkle into a face with a beautiful, like, winning smile, like the moon cracking open to reveal a giant dragon alien. Yeah, and, and, and like, as his speedboat is lowering down, he, like, gets this great close-up from up on the top deck as you just see his face, like, disappear over the lip of the deck. The last thing you see are, are his fucking mischievous eyes. Is like, yeah. I know I'm going to fuck with all of you tonight. Yeah, those two tiny little diamonds in his face. It's uh, good shit, yeah. in my humble opinion. They all go to this island. There are a bunch of shots of, of like Clinton going through the hallways of his monastery, putting like tape recorders in different places. Mm. Recordings of monks chanting starts to play. Yeah. And they're coming out of like every different passageway of, of, of a monastery. Then all of the people playing the game are in a sort of like open air space and they read a bunch of rules, basically saying this game tonight starts at nine o'clock, ends at nine thirty. There is no talking aloud. Everyone has to observe a vow of silence while you're in the monastery. Well, and, and this is the moment where you're like, Oh, like these two genres, like this film is changing hmm. because like up until this point, this film and, and like, this is a 2016 film, but the, the Greek film I tried to name earlier, oh, yeah. uh, uh, it's called Chevalier. It's from 2016, which is about a, a bunch of rich people in a yacht right? and is a film that is clearly much more in reaction to this than the thing that spoilers alert. I'm about to discuss reviews in a bit. A lot of people uh, talk about there is an episode of Succession entirely set on a boat, but but Chevalier is a, a modern Greek film about a bunch of rich people where it is about quite similar subjects as this. But this is the po- but it is it's naturalist throughout. This is the point where you're like you finally understand that like maybe someone could come back as a ghost. I just thought they were going to be shredded. Now they can't talk. Anything can happen. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. suddenly exploded. It's it's good fucking shit. Oh yeah, and and this is what Herbert Ross had to say about like making a film that's set on a boat. If you have a group of people on a ship, the ship becomes a metaphor for existence. You can't help it. It's not a symbol one strives for, but it does happen. This is not a picture about film people. It's about people. I'll tell you what the picture's about. It's about civilization and barbarism. You cannot make up for the absence of civilization. Well, and yeah, like I didn't even really think about this film at all in terms of it being about people making a film, Mm. even though it is about people making a film. Yeah. Because unlike Pennies from Heaven, you don't hear, you don't see any bit of a film. No one watches anything. The details of the film are deliberately vague. Yeah. The closest it gets is, is in like James Mason's introductory scene. He is on the set of a dog food commercial. 
and, and that is chosen to be deliberately generic, right? Yeah. Dog food commercial is a great stand-in for like doing fucking worthless, worthless shit, you know? Sure, yeah. They all have to go look around the monastery. And each of them goes in a different direction, following different chanting. And it's a great looking film throughout, mm. but this becomes this almost, this becomes an almost like speed racer, Sin City, no, these inky blacknesses with, with, with faces, with, with faces in spotlights or doorways and people in silhouette. And it's also where the film, like, Pennies from Heaven has a lot more, but we get mixing between things, people's faces juxtaposed on stuff. And it is really like uh, this film is following its own game and is growing into something new in a way that is so delightful in it and surprising. And it's like, it's not what you signed up for. It's not what you wanted, but it's what, you need you know yeah. brian johnson has always said that, that like this was one of his big inspirations for for, for, for making knives out which, which you can absolutely see yeah there are almost no direct parallels no. except there's there's a murder and a mystery well and like uh a large group of people who are scum well it is i'm sorry i'm so fucking sorry finn i gotta do it I know listeners at home, please fucking forgive me. Like what Rian did in The Last Jedi mm. of looking at Star Wars and being like, what would this actually be now? Sure. If yeah. I take the perspective that looked at the 70s and gave it Star Wars and then the beginning of the 80s and gave it Empire Strikes Back, what is Star Wars looking at the 2010s and what would it make? It would make The Last Jedi. He is looking at this film and being like, what is the last of Sheila now? Because the th that cast of people in Knives Out are all people desperately trying for celebrity and success without work in a way that is the modern equivalent sure, yeah. of being a film star or director. Every yeah, except for Anna Diarmas, of yes. course, the the perfect woman. Uh, and yes, I am going to be arguing a lot at the end of the year about her not really being up to scratch to play deep water is part of the point. But let's see how blonde goes. I come on. <laughs> like, I get like it's like Elvis getting advanced reviews that are like, this is a mess. It is like, just look. Andrew Dominic made Chopper, the uh, the assassination mess of James Comagius by Cowardly Robo the Ford, and uh, uh, killing them softly. Like, can we give him a chance to make his fucked up X-rated Anna de Armas uh, adaptation of a Joyce Carol Oates <laughs> fictional book about Marilyn Monroe? And like, okay, you know, Baz Luhrmann, Strictly Ballroom, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, fucking Gatsby. He can do an Elvis film where he fucking sings Smells Like Teen Spirit. He's allowed, <laughs> like, if anyone can do it, Baz can, you know? Yep. Anyway, um, sorry, you were saying. Yeah, so the first ever movie about Elvis with a song by Doja Cat in the trailer. Oh, yeah, no, 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 because uh, 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 in The Lord of the Rings, it's Elvish. And it was pretty insane to hear Doja Cat, presumably years before she was born, in, in trailers for, for Lotor. Everyone is wandering around the monastery. We see. Philip, Tom, Christine, mm. um, and as uh, Christine leaves, she tells someone else who we only see from the back of their robe. Mm. Uh, so, so that person goes in, and then a few minutes later, 
Raquel Welch comes along and she tries to get in, but someone shoves a sign saying the game is over under the door, which mm. uh, should not happen yet because the game shouldn't be over until she talks to Clinton yeah. because she has the homosexual card. Yeah. They all go back to the boat without Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one knows where he is. And then the next morning, uh, he still isn't back. So they go to the island and they find his uh, dead body in the room with his head uh, smashed in with a rock. Yeah, like uh, uh, like a, like it fell from a great height onto yeah. him. So immediately, uh, there are things about the crime scene that are kind of weird. Uh, the rock that, that was used to smash his head in, someone was trying to make it look like it came from a pillar that was just above him, mm. like it fell off, but they used the wrong part of a the pillar. They used a piece of stone from the bottom of another pillar, not the top yeah. of, another, of another pillar. And the, the like, top and bottom of the pillars are carved differently. There is a, a cigarette which has been uh, stubbed out kind of weird and is all burnt away except for there is like a strand of the paper left. It looks like a, it's like curled like a witch's finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it just means that someone started a cigarette and didn't finish it. So it is yeah. like it's ashed all the way through as opposed to smoked down. Yeah. And there is also a piece of wood that is inside Clinton's cloak. Where he was hiding for the previous night was inside a confessional booth wearing a wig that looked like Raquel Welch's hair. Mm. And when he is found, he is he is in the same room as the confessional booth, but he's on the ground like five meters away. Yeah. So suddenly, uh, there is now a real murder mystery going on, mm. and uh, no, nope. and and it is interesting because we've been ahead of them. Mm. We knew from the vibe this was going to happen. Yeah. And, and, and that gives us. Uh, I'm sorry, please. In your heart, a Vifrim Dunst effect, right? Sure. Because we have spent at this point five, ten minutes being like, we know shit's going to get bad. How do they fucking re- How are they going to react? Oh, I think he's going to fucking do this, right? Mm-hmm. And it is now playing a game with our expectations. Like if Saw started with, I don't know, a, 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 a long shots of Carrie Yules and Lee Winnell chained to the wall and you just being like, the fuck are they going to do when they wake up? Yeah. You know that that is so easy underlines their the fact how simple they are as people. You know, yeah. And this is like the first hour of the movie is the like build up to and discovery <laughs> yeah. of of Clinton's body. Yeah, and it is of their like obviously when adapting, even though this is written this as, as we said at the time. This really feels like a play, yep. an adaptation of a play, an incredibly good one, but there was no play. Yep. Uh, 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 the, the really interesting thing is that there are, there are like two choices when you're adapting or writing a murder mystery for the screen. Does the death come at the end of the first act or is it the turn in the middle of the film, the mm. turn in the middle of the second act? And that's like, that's the shift between this and Knives Out. Knives Out, discovery of the death is a quarter of the way in. Yeah. And in this and like Death of a Nile, the other murder mystery I've watched recently, put it dead in the middle. So it becomes a, a mirror, like mirror or tenet or the worst person in the world. Yeah. So everyone goes back to the boat. No one seems particularly shocked that Clinton's dead. They are sort of like talking about it pretty, pretty casually, occasionally joking about it. Yeah. They're, they're being absolute bastards about it yes. pretty much. Uh, yeah. And uh, Philip, uh, James Mason's character, mm. and Tom, Richard Benjamin's character, they they are the two who are the, like first to notice that something is wrong mm. with the scene of the accident, and they are the two who like try and figure out who is behind it. That leads us to the last hour of the film, which is essentially four scenes. Yeah, and three of them are twenty minute long confrontations, and one is the the not the tag on the end, but like the coda. Yeah. 
the first one of these is that afternoon after Clinton's body has mm. been found, everyone is gathered in the drawing room of, of, of the yacht and Tom lays out what he thinks happened. He explains what he thinks Clinton's game was. He, he explains a thing of all of these cards that we got, each of them relates to one of us. But not the person it was given to. Yeah. And we, are, we were supposed to have worked that out and be doubting each other, mm. which is, again, them learning something we had assumed. They're always catching up to us. We're always looking down yeah. on them. All, uh, there is another major clue we missed, which is right before they go to the monastery, there is a conversation between Tom and Lee, mm. where Lee seems pretty worried. Tom goes and takes a shower, and we, we see, like, through, through, the opening, through the open door of the bathroom into their bedroom, mm. we see Tom's wallet with his card sticking out of it. And we see a hand, uh, like, like, reach in and open it up. We see that the card that Tom has says, you are a hit-and-run killer. Mm. Which is uh, another, is a bigger twist than there being a body. Yeah. This is the first time we've had genuinely new information for maybe half an hour. Yeah. Apart from someone has died like you thought would. The like, other big thing that happens around, around then is there is a conversation where Clinton tells Tom that his card is going to be the like, big reveal on Saturday, on the final day. So that all happens right before they go to the monastery. Mm-hmm. In this first big drawing room scene, Tom lays out all the clues about how he thinks the murder was committed and is trying to figure out who would have a motive. Mm. And so he gets everyone to lay their cards on the table. Yep. Mm. And the thing that rhymes through all of these scenes that I love is that they are all different people trying to do the, you know why I have brought you all here thing yeah. and that going horrifically wrong for them. This is where the, the ego and superficiality of them as comedy people start interfering with the mystery film rather than the other way around. Uh, yes. So, um, when the cards are all laid out on the table, they are, you are a shoplifter, you are a homosexual, you are an ex-convict, you are an informer, you are a little child molester, and uh, you are a hit-and-run killer. And, and yeah, and so uh, uh, pe- 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 people start claiming different cards in, yeah. in order to, like, not get stuck with, you are a hit-and-run killer, or you are a little child molester. Well, yeah, and they're really stretching, I guess. So sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tom takes the homosexual card and uh, tells his wife Lee that him and Clinton had had an affair a few years ago. There's a, there's a great bit of McShane there where he gets to be like, are you saying that you get the exclusive right to that card? And, and Tom's like, no, I'm just saying that I, I looked at all the cards on the table and I saw only one would apply to me. And he says, well, yeah, but have, it, it could be one. How, 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 like, you know, who, and, and, it, it is, it is absolutely the vibe Finn is laying down but like delicacy of how he he plays it, like mm. how obvious and not obvious it is. Yes, yeah. like the 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 delusion he plays is oh, I love it. And then when Tom says like, well, sure, this card might apply to you, but 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 like none of the other ones apply to me. And, and then Anthony says, well, you are you call me a homosexual now. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the moments that almost let's say moral panic. Mm around being a quote-unquote accused of being queer yeah. are the are bits I have seen uh, used to call it homophobic. Yes. And I think it is because I cannot see a reading of the, when are we supposed to relate to these people? I don't, every time we're laughing at them. Yeah. Genuinely every time. And so we are supposed to think they are wrong. Uh, uh, the film can't say that explicitly, 
but it's working well enough implicitly, you know? Yeah. Is I, it- I, I think this is a pro-queer moment just to... Yeah, so I'm fully laying my cards on the table. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 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 the ra- the rainbow. They're not. A, they don't say like you're a shoplifter. After Tom takes the homosexual card, Alice takes the shoplifter card. Yeah, which we already knew she was a shoplifter. But there is still that. Even then, that is played as a moment of tension. Yeah, which is uh, good shit. Like yeah. they know what they're doing. Then, it's so hardcore. Then Christine, she picks up the informer card. She reveals that, like, decades earlier, when she was a, like, lowly secretary, uh, she had uh, given some names to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Mm, which clearly, like, tears her apart. This is this is a massive admission of, of guilt. Well, it is a massive revelation of guilt, but also she really tries to play it off like it's not that big a deal. Oh, yeah. Like, but- for, like, a while they didn't get work, but now they get work again. You know, yeah, if, yeah. if their name comes up for something, I try and get work. But, you know, if, if, if they see me, they, they, you know, cross the street to get away from me. Yeah, and, 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 and sorry, to be clear about my point, mm. I mean that it's, like, the way she throws it off mm. is uh, uh, makes clear yeah. how important... She knows how big a deal it is, if yeah. you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, uh, and so then there, there, there are there are three cards left. There are ex-convict, little child molester, and hit and run killer. And it seems like Tom is hinting that Anthony might be the hit and run killer. That he might have been the one who killed Sheila at the start of the film. And, and this is like Hot Fuzz laying two sets of clues. You are at, at each of these moments of of quote unquote. I've brought you here to tell you the truth. The film is entirely, which we get about six of, at least two in each scene. The film is acting and you buy, oh, this is the real answer. Yeah. And it, it is so good at tricking you. It's a bit annoying. And Anthony says, nope, I'm not a hit and run killer. I'm the ex-convict. I was jailed multiple times for assault. Once the ex-convict card is taken off the table, you really see James Mason start to panic. We are in, like, a James Mason silver fox fly away here constantly, like, um, because like Tom Cruise, mm. as people often say about James Mason, he's best when he's thrown and having to recover. And sure, this yeah. whole time he's, like... The fact that he he's James Mason goes like, oh, you've had status at times, but now he's like, oh, what? You know, it's uh, it's it's great stuff. It's like yeah. a, a hamster having a panic attack. Basically, as soon as the little child molester card was like put down on the table, yeah. everyone like looked at James Mason. We know it's you. It is. Well, and it is contained within silences earlier in the film. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, in his introductory scene, doing the dog food commercial, there, there were also, like, a bunch of, like, little girls wearing, like, pink tutus who are, like, part of the commercial. And, like, one of them comes over and sits on his lap. And, I mean, like, as soon as one of the carts later on says yeah. that, you're like, oh, yeah. Well, and also there's the other major clue, which is that he is Humbert Humbert from Lolita. Yeah. We need McShane takes the ex-comic card. He's like, oh, well, I've, 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 I've been arrested before. And he's like, no, no, it doesn't say arrested. It says ex-convict. And you, you are not an ex-convict. So by implication, you're either, you're either a murderer or a child molester. Yeah. Yeah. The two cards left are, uh, hit and run killer and little child, mol- and little child molester. And the two people left are Philip and Lee. And at this point, Lee breaks down and she, and she confesses to, she confesses to the crime. Mm. She she was driving uh, kind of drunk on the night of the party a year ago, and she hit and killed Sheila. And then 
uh, like dro- drove all like drove all the way to Vegas to give herself an alibi. And, and this explains like she has been nervous and shrinking throughout. Yeah. And at the time you were like, oh, this is just she's just a bit flighty. And, and in retrospect, you're like, oh, no, she is just terrified of people finding out she she already knows they are on a path towards her being outed and she can't escape and when she confesses there are a bunch of flashbacks to the night before of her in the confessional booth with james coburn as he tells her i know that you killed her and i'm going to expose you and then mm. i mean i mean her getting mad and picking up a giant candle holder and shoving it through the front of the confessional booth and uh, and uh, stoving his face in, and then I mean, trying to make it look like an accident with the with the rock and stuff. Um, also, a thing we have had uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, we've been tracking the path of a lot is an ice pick. They got a yeah. bucket, a champagne bucket of ice, which has a pick and a scoop in it, and and and, and we see James Mason using the pick. And a couple of scenes later, we see someone using the shovel mm. to pick at it. And someone mentions, where is the ice pick gone? Yeah. Uh, and we never see it again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So she, she has a breakdown, says that she ran Sheila over, but it was a mistake. Mm. And then she killed Clinton because he was being so mean and was going to expose her. Mm. She like goes downstairs to have a rest mm. while everyone else stays upstairs and uh, just, just keeps you know talking about stuff. Then uh, later on that night, Tom goes down to look for her and uh, cannot find her. And then eventually they break into the locked ensuite bathroom to Clinton's room, yeah. which which has a tub in it, and they find her uh, with her wrist slit in the tub. A um, this is, is a moment of gore. It is like possibly the most shocking image in the film, sure, right? Yeah. It, it is. It, there is something. It's it's deeply unsettling. The ship finally pulls into port, and and everyone gets off the ship except for James Mason. Tom asks him which hotel he's going to be staying in, and he says, Well, dear boy, I, I was prepared for a week on a yacht. I didn't bring any pocket money. Yeah. Which, I believe at this point I said, is there any joke that's not improved by having its punchline be pocket money? It's just good stuff, I think. Later that night, mm. you see Tom coming back to the boat, and there is a great shot from outside of the boat. As you see, all of the lights of the boat are off. Except for in, in the in the like main drawing room, you see the light flashing on and off every couple of seconds. So Tom goes inside and he sees uh, the most terrifying thing you can see: uh, James Mason sitting in the dark, lighting cigarette after cigarette. Yeah, he's not in the dark. He is lit in a pool of light by his desk lamp, which makes him look like he is uh, the lone person on a very specific island, surrounded by night. And as I believe I said to you at the time, nothing unlike if you walked into a room and you saw that, mm. leave instantly. Absolutely. Instantly. Yeah. So so James Mason is lighting cigarette after cigarette and then I mean stamping them out on the ground, try, mm. try, try, trying trying to make a cigarette burn down like the one they found on the ground. Mm. And and none of them do it until he lights one. Frozen on the ground, tells Tom to stamp it out, and then turns the light off. Right as Tom goes to do it, yeah, and 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 so Tom like like his foot lands a bit awkwardly. He misses it and only stamps out the filter and the end of it, mm. and, and 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 so it burns down in a in a weird curve, and which is uh, 
important. The film has trained you very specifically to recognize. Mm. This is one of those, it's one of the great joys of cinema is people hiding exposition and jokes Mm. so that when something happens, everything clicks into place. This is one of those moments. Yeah. This scene basically turns into a like battle of wits between Tom and Philip. And it's fucking witty. Yeah. Like obviously James Mason had an incredible career from the 40s to the 80s. And uh, I assume you're not alone with me in saying justifiably. Uh, Yes. So there is a range on this man. Like, of all the failed attempts at adapting Lolita, uh, his Humbert Humbert is maybe the most successful uh, aspect of any of them. Uh, Shelley Winters is also great. Right. And anyway, anyway. This scene in particular of, of him and Richard Benjamin is one of my favorite James Mason scenes of all time. Well, I, I at the time I compared it, as we were watching it, what I compared it to was uh, <clears throat> Complete the Thought Youth's Brain, is the opening scene of the original Mel Brooks, The Producers, right, yeah. which is a 25-minute long scene between Zero Mostel and, and Gene Wilder which is just so electric and so fun to watch you you it would ha- you would happily have it be the whole film and like this has that same vibe i could be in that fucking room forever it's it, it uh, everything else aside it's just fun it's just fun to 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 watch this occur you know yeah and uh yeah so oh, and, and yeah and so like and yeah and so over, and so over the course of the scene james uh yeah, and so over the course of the scene, Philip slowly proves that Tom was the killer and that Tom killed his own wife, Lee, in order to frame her. There are a bunch more flashbacks to the monastery. Which aren't vital at no. this point, but they do, they're there for people who haven't quite caught up, and they do that well. Yeah, it shows how Tom killed Clinton with the ice pick and, 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 being, and being like puppeteered his body for the next few people who came into the room before, before he could escape. Yeah, and, and all within, like, fitting seamlessly between the things we saw in that sequence. Anyway, like, all, all good shit like yeah. that, yeah. And yeah, and then and then and then this bit ends with Tom going downstairs, uh, going into Alice Anthony's room, uh, and, and seeing the creepy hand puppets. And like you see, you see his eyes kind of light up. Yeah, and you're like, oh, that can't be good. Yeah, it cuts back to James it, Mason it, it, again. Right. Another moment of just dr- like you're just like, oh, this is just not gonna go well, guys. Yeah, uh, it uh, uh, it uh, cuts back to James Mason upstairs, mm. and we see him looking around the room. And he notices the Polaroid that Clinton took on the first day. Mm. And he, he like really looks at it for a while. Well, and, 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 and we don't know what he's seeing. Yeah. He has a flashback to something that Clinton said when, when he was explaining how the game would work for the first time, where Philip had said something like, I just hate games where you have to move. And Clinton says, you don't have to move for this game if you're smart enough. He looks at that Polaroid and he sees that each one of them in the photo is lined up under one of the letters of Sheila. Which is spelled out, just in yeah. case you forgot, because uh, uh, we first mentioned it two hours ago, uh, it's, it's been a good day. We're, we're about to go see uh, Hardcore by Paul Schrader uh, 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 at the Hollywood Avenue. It's a good day. I yeah, think. three uplifting films in a row. <laughs> this is a, like, this is the, the thing I want to stress about this Polaroid, is that this is, I think, the first time a character is ahead of us. Sure, yeah. And it makes you so fucking hungry. You're mm. like, what What has he worked out that I don't know? Yeah. 
Uh, come on, come on. Uh, uh, and then he, and that you learn as the same time as everyone else is so frustrating. Yeah. You're like, I should, come on, you know? Look, movies are often so bad at showing people thinking through problems mm. without just like resorting to voiceover or just like endless flashbacks of like putting the pieces together. But like this has a few brief flashbacks, but really is about- well, and, and, and the flashbacks are there to underline it yeah. uh, 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 later. You still get the satisfactory moment if you've really been tracking. It, it, it services mm. both the really engaged and casual audiences incredibly well. Yeah, and like the way it uses flashbacks isn't like- someone you know saying well the killer could be a woman could be a woman could be a woman and then it turns out the killer's a woman yeah. it, 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 it is it, 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 it is like a little hint of it, if it, if it like sparks something in his brain mm. ra- rather than something like super obvious uh, uh, but we still get one of the great pleasures of mystery films which is people explaining their own theories mm. and us seeing recreations of you know everyone doing all the different things yeah. which is good i think fun so what james mason has noticed and what he shows to tom when tom comes back upstairs with his hands that suspiciously hidden behind his back uh is is yeah this is i mean we know they're dumb idiots but this is especially a scene of people being dumb idiots yeah. you know philip says hey tom come here i've, I've got to show you something i've, I've, figured, I've figured something out mm. and you see tom uh, drop the two hand puppets on, onto a couch it and- is both so like and this is the peak of the interleaving of the two styles where you have something from mm. the comic the 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 superficial laugh at these hollow people film suddenly drop into the murder mystery yeah. like forging a connection that is both hilarious and a clue it is like beyond being a delight to watch it's like the technical mastery of that kind of stuff is yeah it's it, say bon say bon it it, it, it it makes you like really disappointed that like Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim didn't make more movies together. It, I recently just finished uh, uh, reading a book, which was interviews with six uh, screenwriters right, of this yeah. period. Uh, Schrader, Robert Town, Petty Chayefsky, a couple. Uh, uh, Mil- uh, Milius? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Milius and t- two other people. They were writing, their average was writing things as strong as this. Hmm. What I alluded to earlier is that we see in it the skill that makes Perkins such a good actor. You see the nervy, reflective, uh, 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 kind of almost PTSD for being alive of his Joseph K and Wells, yeah. the trial, or just the, this perpetual conflict of this child trapped inside a man, uh, uh, who, who may be his own mother in, in psycho. And you see that in how all these characters are so malformed. But given so many chances to speak their piece and always develop through that. And Sondheim, of course, we know is great at picking a subject and then like wringing the sponge of ideas of that subject dry. Who else could write a whole musical just about presidential assassins? Yeah. And he has so clearly looked at like the superficiality of this era of, of Hollywood stars and is doing that same thing in the way that, again, to promote Chevalier from 2015, check it out, is very much doing that with upper middle class and upper class people of Greece at, at, at the time. It's really worth checking out. But yeah, uh, uh, so 
And so we are pushing towards the end, yes. Finn. Yeah, so Philip explains to Tom what he has realised, which is the letters of Sheila, S-H-E-I-L-A, mm. each of those letters corresponds with the first letter of one of the secrets cards, and the order that they were lined up in, in the photo under the letters is who the uh, a secret belonged to. First person in the photo is Raquel Welch, and so she's under the S, and she was the shoplifter. Yeah. And 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 on and on, and and, the- and this is an incre- and this shows how much it is committing to both genres because this is one of those incredible Agatha Christie yeah. as opposed to Conan Doyle, the two opposing. Like you can work out if you are paying enough attention, every clue is there in Christie that you could solve it before mm. them. Whereas in Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes has to come in and be a, a yeah, wizard. Yeah, he's got superpowers. And, and that this clue is fucking obvious. And when it happens, you're like, I should have worked that. Come yeah. on. That's so obvious. Fuck you. Come on. You know? Yeah. And there are these great shots of Mason, like, laying all the cards out of the table, slowly layering them over each other so that yeah. just the first letter of each one is visible. And then he gets to the last one, you are a hit-and-run killer. And he's like, this one doesn't fit. This should, this should, this should be an A, mm. but, it, but it's an H. What's going on here? This is the biggest clue of all. Mm. And Tom says, maybe Clinton made a mistake. He's like, no, this was Clinton's whole game. He wouldn't make a mistake like that. The like, thing that is hinted at a lot throughout the movie is that Lee was an alcoholic. It's almost, I don't think it's possibly mentioned in dialogue at all. It is just all about who gives drinks to who, what, you know? I believe there is a scene where, where Diane Cannon mentions that someone used to be an AA. Oh, uh, yeah, that, but it is wonderfully like this is, again, something that you can have worked out. Yeah. Like, it, 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 it rewards you so much for leaning into the film. Yeah, and like especially on rewatch, you like notice how much alcohol is associated with her character. It's at that point where Philip fully realizes you did this, Tom. You like switched the cards so that Lee would think that Clinton was going after her for for killing Sheila, and like that would make her angry and try to kill him. I mean, you killed her to to cover that up and make it look like a suicide. Uh, once he's admitted to this. Uh, Tom picks up the clown hand puppets, raises them up incredibly menacingly, and then staring directly at James Mason says, I don't have any gloves. Just, I think it, a perfect line in just like how how simultaneously ridiculous and chilling it is. It is. It, uh, it is on the level of like story craft. Yeah. What possession a Jani in that subway station tunnel or Sam Neill uh, breathing and going towards the, her having sex with the creature, that, how that touched me emotionally as, as these like bright burning diamonds of moments, if you know what I mean, this was like that as a storytelling one. It is so like, Clearly, this whole plot is in so many ways a Swiss watch yeah. to get to that moment. But like, and it's, I'm going to, uh, because uh, uh, I think Hot Fuzz does it incredibly well, as does essentially the same trick. Yeah. And like Edgar Wright is a, is a big fan of this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, transparently yeah. so. And, and not in any cruel way. But it is, it is, it is, we've talked about this before, but like the definition of a good twist is surprising, but obvious. It is just, it is, it just fit like, it feels so satisfying, yeah. you know, it feels 
like it, it's like a good like you feel full do you know what i mean yeah. and he 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 wraps his his like puppet glove hands around james mason's neck and and, be- and begins to strangle him <sighs> and the two of them like roll around the room trying to kill each other and it is a, and what i liked about this is that it is a genuinely unpleasant clumsy yeah. fight it's the most realistic thing it is just these two horrible untrained fighters just bawling at each other yeah and then the thing that stops them from fighting is from the back of the room you hear diane cannon uh, telling them to stop and be like what are you doing here and she's like i decided to stay on the ship because i wanted to fuck one of the crew they had been using clinton's room and so they had been using the wireless device that clinton was using to 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 listen in on everyone and so she heard the whole conversation and like james mason sort of manages to play it off as like we're just having an argument about what's going to happen in, the, in this film we're making about sheila it is it, un- it is unclear the extent to which she believes him or cares or, or how yeah and that is our fir- it's like the first time we've been where it is ambiguous to us mm. what someone's uh objective or responses yeah and, and like this and like this bit like right at the end is the thing that makes me like truly love this movie other than the, the like accusations of homophobia which i just simply do not believe stand sure. up to analysis yes right the other thing that people really criticize this movie for is like the guy who who figures out who the murderer was the guy who ultimately solves it is a child molester and the movie like stops talking about that after a certain point. It is brought up enough that everyone knows that he is a child molester. It is a forefront in your mind every time you see him. And, yeah. and then the movie stops talking and, about it. And, and also because he's humbert humbert. Yeah, and so like this scene with Mason and Cannon and Benjamin yeah. ends with them all essentially agreeing to sweep the series of 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 murders under the rug in order so that they can make this movie about Sheila's death and profit from it. And so this is a movie about Hollywood, which ends with a House Un-American Activities Committee informer, a multiple murderer, and, and a child molester, all agreeing to help each other cover up their crimes in order to profit off of the death of their friends. That's Hollywood, baby. At least according to, to Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. You know, it, 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 is, it is as pointed and as dark and as bleak as the ending to Blowout. It is like... I don't know. I just, I want to mention the end of Promising Young Woman and then just move on. Not necessarily as an endorsement of that film that I enjoy and like. Sure. Uh, um, I, yeah, I just, this, the, I, I really like this film. I, I don't know where it sits in my pantheon, but, but I like, thank you for showing me it. It's absolutely sound. Yeah. What do you think well, it is? Well, well you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, it has maybe like one of my like top ten closing shots of all time, which is there. There's this like big zoom in on Richard Benjamin's face, sitting on the couch, looking like defeated and dejected, as he has like once again been sidelined mm. and is only going to be able to do rewrites on the movie, and is still like you know, still going to end up being poor. He's kind of like cowed and cucked, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, he's he's sitting broken on the couch with a glove still on his hands. There's a big cushion on his face. 
as the bit Midler song Friends starts to play, and when it finally like zooms all the way in, and it's now in this, it's now in a close up. The chorus kicks in, and it's, it's bit Midler like, but you got to have friends, and, 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 and the it, credits roll over the photo of uh, the po- the Polaroid yeah. of them together, which ma- which looks a lot like the opening of Memento, except yeah. Memento does it backwards, or, and or, I all or, or like the end of any seventies sitcom, yeah, and I I really. It that feels deliberate to me. This is a uh, uh, very sound. I've seen this movie like fr- like three times now. I think. I think I probably enjoy it more every time. Yeah, I I have no doubt that when you revisit this film, you find new layers to it. Absolutely, you find yeah. new depths. It, it's so fucking good. Finn. Yes. Last of Sheila. You uh, uh, predictably think it is sound, and I slightly less predictably. Also strongly agree. Uh, we keep a ranked lists of every film we have watched for this show. We certainly uh, do. Uh, and I want to know where you rank The Last of Sheila on your list. So I have it at uh, number 56, uh, which is above Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning <laughs> and below Blue Velvet. That is a fair placement. I would have more films in that spectrum, but I don't disagree with it. All three excellent. Yep. I have it, and this sounds lower than it is. We have uh, a problem with this show is we want half of the films we watch are good. <laughs> I have it at number seventy five, mm. which it puts it one beneath some like it hot, and one above Interstellar. <laughs> uh, Finn, well, yeah, we both agree we like it. I and here's the thing: I thought it's just such a charmer. Yeah. Even if like the murder mystery stuff irritates you, the comedy is there enough to entertain you. These are great people to watch. And if the comedy stuff strikes you as obvious, there's a genuinely gripping murder mystery. Yeah. And and if you don't like that, you can focus on how ruthlessly mean it is about all its characters. Yeah. in, in, In a way that is like kind of the model of cringe comedy, but without the actual pain. I And so I I made a bet with myself. I said, if I could find a negative review of this film, I'm so sure I wouldn't, that I would inject myself with a virus that will age me at twice the rate. So you may not see it now. You know, you think I may have like, uh, you know, 40 years ahead of me. Yeah. 20. Oh, no. Why? Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck, Finn. Oh, fuck. Oh, I could have told you this would end badly. I... (laughs) Now I gotta inject the virus because I've found quite a few. In and, fact, and now, 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 you've got to start doing episodes of a slow path at, at twice the rate. Well, oh, you, you're right. There is an upside. I can watch more <laughs> Doctor Who and spend time with my partner. Then, oh, woof. So, Finn. Yes. I, I, I am, in fact, going to read you a, a, a brief kind of survey, an array of the negative reviews to The Last of Sheila, because uh, some are funny. Uh, some make good points and some make connections that I agree with that kind of reinforce that the last of Sheila has a, a legacy. And th- then there is one more because they have an interesting top four. Right. Uh, in, for that game. <laughs> but here's the first from uh, Asexual Susie, who gave it one star and a heart, interestingly. Is, it, is that Susie spelled like Susie and the Banshees? No, like Susie, but the Z is a C. For Zu- Susie Kato, 
her name got in a car crash. Oh, okay. Um, this movie is actually pretty stellar and has a really solid mystery in it, but I'm legally bland, <clears throat> but I'm legally bound to give it one star because it may have been responsible for inventing POV ASMR videos because of those scenes where they're whispering at each other in yep. POV. I'd, I just thought in a, in a world of terrible joke reviews <laughs> on, on Letterboxd, seeing one where you're like, that's a good joke that could only exist in this format. <laughs> I, a, a sexual uh, Susie? That's five stars and a half from me. <laughs> uh, the next is uh, uh, by Chaz P, who gives it a sincere one and a half star. Re- read a New Yorker review of the last ep of season two of Succession. What a great show. Which referred to the, because that ep is set on a yacht too, so we watched. A young Ian McShane with a much cleaner mouth than in Deadwood <coughs> and discovered Joan Hackett, a convincing presence who was emotionally available in a way none of the others were. James Coburn deeply irritating when only his character is supposed to be that. James Mason cashing in his check, but I still suppose we could have just watching him sipping whiskey for the whole running time. The film otherwise ludicrous. <laughs> Sorry, the film otherwise ridiculous, but some glorious 70s costumes and decor. So uh, basically, that's the bulk of the actual negative reaction right. is people looking at this film and basically knocking off two to three stars because it's dated. And the answer is it's a time capsule, yeah. you prick. It, 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 is, it is so specifically 70s. Uh, uh, and like, it is. It is good when things are off their time. That is a valid thing to be. Yeah, like, I, I like learning about the past through how it wrote about itself. Yeah. Or the future, or that, like, art is, like, enjoying art is a relationship between you and the media, and part of that relationship is both of you's age. Yeah. Like, also, uh, a lot of stuff in the 70s looked cool. Yeah, but that, we think that. <laughs> Because the fashion cycle, the first fashion cycle of the 70s, mm-hmm. where the people who were like one to five years old in the 70s finally left either high school or university, got full-time jobs so they could start buying the clothes they thought were cool, which were the ones they first saw when they were a child, hence the 20-year fashion cycle. So actually we're talking uh, that it would be more of an aughts look, right? Well, so 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 no, it would be it, it would be because people we think from we think things from the seventies are cool because we grew up in the nineties where people were dressing like they thought people were cool in the seventies is what I'm accusing you of. Right, so here's you a, didn't grow up in the nineties. No, I, <laughs> I was so close. To, <laughs> that was so close to a good point, though, right? Well, here's the thing. Uh, it might have been. But I wasn't listening because, uh, 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 because j- j- just for people who are listening, uh, Yufa was wearing some glasses, which, which were like, which were like fogging up earlier, and you took them off to clean them and put them on, and they, they immediately started yeah, fogging up again. again. And so I'm just seeing them fog up in real time. <laughs> I want to be clear about one thing: uh, uh, they are blue light glasses. <laughs> They're genuinely help helping my sleep cycle. There is science that proves <laughs> that I'm not doing stolen glasses, Valor, and. I'm a naturally quite sweaty person. My brow goes first. Uh, uh, I normally have to have them hanging lower, you know, on the bridge mm. of my nose. 
but I don't do that around other people because then it just looks like I'm cosplaying either Robbie Coltrane and Cracker <laughs> or like generic Hogwarts professor. Like I just can't do it with other people around. Um, but yeah, the fogging up is it's like the car in Titanic. Um, Anyway, here is, uh, uh, this is a review that I have chosen mainly because I think it will anger you. Great. I do do love to be angry. This is by DMC. When New Hollywood Goes Bad. (laughs) A stark reminder that the fundamental looseness of the period could be positively deadly in the wrong hands. This is actually a fun, honorably, honorably, hmm. this is actually a fun, honorably Agatha Christie-esque script by Sondheim and Perkins, but the direction by Hack Herbert Ross is so lazy, scattershot, (laughs) condescending, (laughs) and dramaturgically slack. Teetering perilously close to the worst kind of good actors on a bad vacation documentary vibe that the limpid, legible qualities of dry classicist takes on similar material by the likes of a John Gilliman or Guy Hamilton seem positively refreshing by comparison. (laughs) So how does it feel to discover that the film you like is bad? Oh, yeah, no, it's, I mean... I guess we have to redo this episode about different movies now. <laughs> yeah, no, what a what a uh, absolutely absolutely surgical reveal of how absolutely intolerable the writer is to be around. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I guess I guess we're doing films film films again with. Uh, oh, let's say uh, we'll do uh, La Flor and Duck Soup for longest and shortest movies I own. <laughs> and here is the final review, which is short, so we can get to the top four. Oh, and like on the like direction of this movie, there are definitely murder mysteries with, with like more style with like a more consistent feel to them we we were talking about both versions of sleuth while Mm. we were watching them they're obviously like knives out and brana's current uh films which are in my opinion successes of style even if with questionable decisions underneath like even we have to say it sherlock is like yeah there there is a way to go into like csi is a part of to make the murder mystery like an aesthetic part Mm. but the like first half of the last of sheila is essentially a hangout movie it 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 is it is supposed to feel loose the tension mounts but in a way that it's supposed to feel like people are underreacting to it and then that like last hour all those scenes that are just conversations in one room are so like tense and so well done and he does so much with them just in that one room yeah last of sheila does what every judd apatow film wants to do and what um uh hot fuzz and Shaun of the dead successfully do and the world's end really valiantly attempts which is that the first half should just feel yeah like a hangout comedy yeah just people there there's a bunch of jokes oh there's a genre premise happening in the background but really it's just some good fun and then the second half is going, nah, ha mind freak. Actually, that first half was a bunch of invisible but meticulous uh, setup for a plot that is now a thrilling and exciting set of dominoes. Yeah. And so, like, th- that first half is so, feels so loose. And, like, the puppets just feel like, oh, they found that on the set. But they are the whole plot. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, 
Oh, it's such good shit. Um, do you want to, and, and th- here's one final review. It's mm. short, but that's because the top four is uh, either exists or is worth guessing yep. in any way. This is by David. One and a half stars. One of those slow burn who done it loses steam in the middle, but gains momentum when the reveal happens. Also proof that I'd be the worst detective. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Uh, I need more context, David. But David here, ho, ho, he has a top four. All right. It's a funny top four. It's Great. interesting. And I think it's a little obscure, just enough that I'll say, you know how I now only have like 20 years to live? Uh, yeah. I have several more doses of that oh, life half no. Oh. no, no, no. For each of these four films, if you get them right, I will half the length of my life again. Okay. Did- uh, uh, but we'll go. We will go from left to right, mm. which is also conveniently, I think, easiest to hardest. Right? Uh, are any of them American? Uh, America, the the whole continent. Uh, are any of them from the United States of America? Uh, one is. One is. Yeah. And when we say from, we mean like. Like, you know, fucking James Bond films in uh, Azerbaijan, but it's a British film, yeah. ultimately. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, let me, I, there's one I got to check on. It's like our triple, it's like how, it's like how a lot of triple R was shot at, at, at like Ukrainian president's mansion. Yeah. But it's an Indian film. <laughs> that is a major psychic event. Yeah. Do you understand what I now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah. I now mean when I call things major psychic events? Once again, this is your weekly reminder to see triple R. So, uh, uh, two of these are definitely American and one is North American. Okay. Uh, yeah. So two are from the USA. One is from North America. So I'm kind of giving you where that one is mm. from as well. Are there any horror movies? There's only one that's from a franchise, which is one of the American films. That franchise started as horror and has never stopped being horror, but it's varied around how much horror it is. And if it is horror at all, of course, because it's set in space. Right. Is it? Okay. Okay. Is, is it? Is it alien? No. Is it one of the alien films? Is it? Well, by some countings, yes, and by some countings, is no. Is it Prometheus? It is Prometheus, yeah. yes. That is one of the North American films. So you have two North American films left and one other. Um, uh, okay, so it's, it's the only franchise film. Uh, 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 one is part of a brand that you would almost consider a franchise, like a, is under a brand stroke production company. That is so like. Is it, a, is it an eight? Oh, okay. Is, is it, no, is no, it no. a Blumhouse? No, it, it oh, is no, not A24 or Blumhouse, but that's the kind of thing we're looking at. Okay. It, it, it is really not either of those things, though. It's not full moon pictures because they also mostly do horror. You don't know it's one of the North American films. Oh, right. Okay. Um, uh, 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 the, uh, 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 the film by the film by a woman is that also what 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 one of the North American ones? Yeah, and it is the hardest one by by quite a wide margin. Okay, uh, is, is, is it is it is it from is it from is it from is it from this millennium? No, the the hardest one, the one directed by a mm. woman, is uh, from the nineties. Okay, uh, uh, like uh, you know, like middle generic nineties, not a particular end. Right. It is. I'll give you some cast members. Okay. 
Linus Roach is the lead. Okay. You've from, from Mandy. Robert Carlyle. Uh, I'll tell you the director. It's Antonia Bird. Do you know it? Uh, I'm 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 Give- vaguely familiar with the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Priest. Okay, no, I'm. I- I might have seen post before. I don't, I don't know. It, it is. Uh, uh, I, I don't know anyone who's seen it. I'm like. I think I am at best aware of it. Right. So yeah. we'll count that one as you getting it. So you've got to. So I'm down to ten. I'm down to living for five years. Uh, oh well. Okay. So two remains: a North American one and other. Okay. And the other one is part of a. Not. It's part of kind of a. A you know a group, an aesthetic grouping. Right, is, is is that aesthetic grouping the French New Wave? No. Uh, is it uh, Dogma 95? No. It's kind of the opposite of Do- Yeah, I would be, sa- I would be, I'd happily call this the opposite of Dogma 95. And it is in a foreign language, you're right. It's the opposite of Dogma 95. Okay, so tell me, list for me the basics of Dogma 95. Uh... Uh, films have to take place in real time, no non-diegetic lighting. Yeah, so live action. Yeah. What is the opposite of all of that? Oh, okay. A- animated. Yeah. Is it, a, is it a Miyazaki? It is a Ghibli, but it's not a Miyazaki. Okay. It's neither Miyazaki, but it is... Uh, uh, it's one of the ones that's more it's, consciously in Miyazaki style. Okay, so 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 it's so it's not a, it's not a it's not a Takahata. No, no, no. It's okay. one of the other ones, and it's what and it's. Okay, I'm just going to name Ghibli films now. Can I, can, uh, but, Pompoko, The Cat no, Returns. No, uh, uh, the one about the uh, like Mary the Witch Flower. Show. No, that's not even that. Oh, that's, 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 that's a different company. That's one of the several companies largely formed by the people who left okay. Ghibli because Ghibli makes it clear that there's not really career progression sure, yeah. there. Uh, this is, I think, maybe is my favorite non Takahata or uh, Miyazaki. Uh, you know which Miyazaki yeah, yeah. Ghibli film? Though I do, I support Goro more than most. It, it starts with a woman, well, no, a, a, you know, a young adult watching children play a, a, in a park and thinking to, like, I hate myself. And it, it's incredibly hashtag goals. Oh, man, I've just not seen any Ghibli outside of outside of Miyazaki. It's when Marnie was there. Oh, I get fuck. to live a full five Yay. years. And now the last one, North American. That's what you know. Uh, I, 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 I cannot, not to, not to interfere too deeply, but this is a film that I think a 20 questions approach would really okay. help. Not that I'm trying to encourage you to make my life two and a half years long or no. Okay. Uh, is it from the United States of America? No. Is it from Canada? It is not entirely set in Canada, but you would call it a Canadian film more than anywhere else. All right. Is it a Cronenberg? No. Is it a Guy Madden? No. Um, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> is it is it nothing no. but trouble? <laughs> no, uh, no. Okay. Is is uh, 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 is it a comedy? No, 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 okay. no. Uh, is it, is it, is I it, recently had a conversation with someone about how they went into this film unprepared, and uh, there are things in it that are upsetting. Okay, um, but 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 it is not a horror movie. No. I mean, it's about the horror of things, but it's a more, a, you would call it a drama. Okay. Um, I, I think I'm not, not, really on, not really on the top of my game today. Okay, Canadian I directors. Just give me some. 
Cronenberg. No. Cronenberg. No. Cronenberg. No. Uh, uh, Madden, Aykroyd. Uh, who's another fucking Canadian? Who we've discussed already today. The most successful Canadian filmmaker working right now after Mike Myers. Cannot think of there Canadians. There are DVDs, Blu-rays of his work to your right. Not immediate. Maybe immediate, right? I own m- several of his oh, films. Denis. Yeah, it's, 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 it's clear Denis Villeneuve. Okay. So, um, you now have one question and two more guesses because mm. thinking back on the clues I've given you so far. Yeah. Uh, is Jack Gyllenhaal in it? No. Okay. Uh, does it involve a school shooting? No. Your first guess is? Uh, Arrival. No. It is not an American film. Oh. It's a Canadian film. Okay. Is it uh, Maelstrom? No, it's Incendies. I oh, get to live Incendies. for Jesus. five years. Good for you. I uh, get I to live for time well. Yeah, I hope there are no other opportunities in this episode for me <laughs> to shorten my life. So... I had watched Pennies from Heaven before, again, on your recommendation, as we've already discussed. Yeah. Uh, and I saw it at this surface level that is so clearly like, to me, this is such a fully formed film from such a disparate set of elements, mm-hmm. right? It is this, this kind of uh, 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 argument against noir her- heroics. Isn't that that Steve Martin plays this lead who thinks he's a a dashing a Bob Hoskins or Humphrey Bogart type? Yeah, but really, what that makes him like Jake Gittes is a man who just gets people killed. But on top of that, the way that that story is explored is to explore characters in inner states. We cut to uh, uh, them doing kind of. Berkeley, Busby Berkeley dance numbers lip syncing to the original recordings of songs from the 20s and 30s. Yes. And that feels so odd as a combination, but in practice, Tim uh, layers these levels of irony how the, this film exists both between its characters, between moments, and between you and it is. Uh, uh, a, just a startling revelation and a really, um, uh, uh, this is not me d- doing down musicals. Uh, many musicals use, uh, 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 their songs or whether they have dialogue or whether, when they have songs for varying different effects. Yep. I'm not saying this is the apotheosis of the musical at all. I'm, no, I just like, I hate when people get broad or dismissive with musicals. Sure, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. It, like film. The only rule is that. You know, you're in a theatre or something you call a theatre and there is music. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, anyway. Uh, uh, and even then it could be John Cage. Everything is musical theatre is what I'm saying. Hello and welcome to my TED talk. I mean, it would be more of a TEDx. Um, and, and it is obviously it comes from uh, uh, Dennis Potter, who is th- the peak of uh, uh, like first era British television, uh, him and Nigel Neal, probably Nigel Neal is the Quatermass guy. Yeah. And uh, the problem with N- Nigel Neal uh, is that his, I- his ideas were better than his writing. And uh, he's just a real fucking dick. Um, whereas Dennis Potter writes these weird intricate, like most famously the singing detective, but the singing detective is the final, one of the final moves 
of a career full of things like this, which includes Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, which he initially did in uh, 1978 with Bob Hoskins in the lead. Yeah. Which you can absolutely like, as ridiculous as it seems, as as a recasting Bob Hoskins to um uh, 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 to, 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 to to Steve to, Martin, yeah. uh, that had the same thing. It was also it was musical sequences, people portraying their thoughts. Uh, it's a common feature of Potter's style. Yeah. Um. But that is the checking out Dennis Potter's work. I guess is what I'm saying. Um. But I don't. Obviously, you're deep on this film. And I'm just interested in studying, like, how did this come about? How did how did this particular project form? Because it seems like such an outlier, like, especially for Martin, but for everyone involved, right? Yeah. From my uh, brief research on Herbert Ross, he was someone who, as a teenager, dropped out of high school to pursue acting. He was like a J- Jewish kid from New York who was like, yeah, fuck, I, 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 I want to go into showbiz. And then... Uh, uh, after trying to, after like studying acting for a bit, he he uh, he he discovered dance. And he was like, "Oh no, okay, this 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 is the thing." And and so for and so throughout the like late forties, he 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 was a, he was a dancer. Did 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 a bunch of work on Broadway, and then sort of like graduated to choreography and eventually directing. And throughout the fifties and sixties, directed and choreographed a ton of stuff on Broadway. By 1950, he, he was a choreographer with the American Ballet Theatre. That's when he started choreographing for Broadway. His first thing on Broadway that, that, that he choreographed was a musical adaptation of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Uh, he, he did a bunch of he, he, he did a bunch of uh, uh, TV work on like for, for like Milton Berle and Steve Allen. Oh, uh, yeah. So part of that generation of kind of like a joke writing yucksters, I guess, if you know what I mean. Like, a, it seems like an era with like. Mel Brooks around of clever decks. Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, so yeah. So in 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 the early sixties, he 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 goes to England and he 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 choreographs the Cliff Richard film, The Young Ones. I mean, obviously the TV show, but do you know that film rings a bell? What what is I mean, it? That, that, that's 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 where the song is from. Oh yeah, no, yeah. but like, like I don't, I don't know what uh, it, what it, is the musical itself like is what I'm asking. Sorry, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, it, it, it is like it's a, it's a like musical comedy film about like about like a bunch of kids who who put who like put on a show to to to, like, to save the orphanage yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. basically. Uh, that, but like that's that that still sounds you know fun. Sure. Yeah. Um and. It does kind of line up with where he goes in his later work, you know, and it is interesting how I wouldn't have picked dance and theater. I kind of would have guessed coming through TV, you know, I thought maybe he is like a a camera op who stepped up. But no, 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 like the theater and dance of it, you can really see. I mean, obviously yeah. in the dance sequences, but but in Last of Sheila, too. He apparently also choreographed the next Cliff Richard film, Summer Holiday. And then comes back to America, does more stuff on Broadway. Is there a musical number in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? They sing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, there's dancing in it. Okay, yeah. So, so he they go he, to a club and dance. Okay, okay, so he 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 staged that apparently. Oh yeah yeah yeah. That, that that thinking back on it makes sense. Yeah, it's just not. It's 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 diegetic. Yeah, there. Yeah. Not that that doesn't make it musical. Anyway. At the end of the 60s, he directs his first film, which is called Goodbye, Mr. Chips, 
which is a which is a which just is a, iconic title number yeah. one, right? Yeah, it's, it's got it's got Peter it's got Peter O'Toole in it. You know what 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 more can you ask for? Mm. His second film, which is the first one that's a hit, is the Owl and the, the Owl and the Pussycat, which is written by Buck Henry, starring Barbara Streisand, and 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 and, and like from there, he's 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 kind of he's kind of going, and. Yeah, and he's making a film every two years, right? Throughout the, like, 70s, he's doing a film a year. He basically isn't doing any more musical stuff in this period. Mm-mm-mm. Like, in The 7% Solution, there's, like, one scene with someone singing, and it's a it's a song that Stephen Sondheim wrote for the film, which I guess is, like, because of their collaboration of Last of Sheila. Yeah. Uh, but Well, that just feels like, um, I don't know, getting one shot directed by Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, what, a, what a treat they got, those lucky bastards. Yeah, and so... Uh, he he, uh, he doesn't direct anything music related again until 1980, when he makes a movie starring Mikhail Baryshnikov about <laughs> about 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 Nijinsky, and, and then it's, it's it's the first of two movies he makes with Baryshnikov. <laughs> that sounds like a Mad Libs. <laughs> um, what a I all like. I would not, yeah, I wouldn't have called any of that, but it all absolutely makes sense, right? Yeah. In 1980, he does Nijinsky. In 1981, he does Paintings from Heaven. I mean, in 1984, he does Footloose, which is one of the, like, defining musical and dance films of, of that decade. That's, like, where Ross was at. With Steve Martin, as I think I said earlier, the, the, this is the first unsuccessful thing he ever does in his life. Uh, yeah, as, as a, as a, as a... As a teenager, he 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 like gets a job in a in a magic store at Disneyland and like mm. graduates to like performing at Disneyland and then and then you know gets on like a couple TV shows. I mean, off of that becomes the most popular comedian the world had ever seen. Well, he, he, yeah, he, he, and, and he becomes like, the first stand up to 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 like to to do stadium shows. Yeah, he he, he becomes yeah the, the the like single biggest thing in comedy, bringing a really. F- like fucking weird and like al- al- and like alternative take on what stand up comedy is to the most mainstream place stand up has ever been. A lot of ink has spilled on this subject, and like again, like all things that feel like great innovations, he was combining a bunch of stuff. Other does sure, but yeah. there is the idea of alternative comedy, which. You know, there's a new Taskmaster episode out today. Uh, I'm so excited, but like alternative comedy is now the mainstream. But the end of that is that like you don't get, you know, Stuart Lee or Daniel Kitson without Steve Martin and yeah. much less we would have gotten Seth Rogen or fucking Michael McIntyre anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it is, and the, the thing people also skip is that, you know, there were, was it like five to 10 years of just doing clubs and just doing shows? Mm. So it, it's, he didn't pop out of nowhere. He sure, like, yeah. he trained. Yeah. So, yeah. So then in, 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 in the like late seventies, he, he like has his run of, of like big TV specials. You got on location with Steve Martin, you got Steve Martin, a wild and crazy guy. And then in 1979, he has like, you know, he's, he's got like a scene or two in the Muppet movie. And then, and then, and then, then that same year, he does the jerk with Carl Reiner. Yeah, which, is, which ha- is hilarious. Yeah, which which is one of my favorite comedies, and it's him and Bernadette Peters, who who were who were who were dating at the time, mm. and they have such incredible fucking chemistry on screen together, as well as that being laugh a minute. Yeah, like laugh a minute, <laughs> like. It's just real, like, it's just one of those films, like, so many films that you're like, that's really funny, 
you laugh every five minutes and the rest of the time you're like, oh, this is funny. Yeah. This is like, no, this is, try- that guy really hates these cans. Yeah. Like, oh my this God. Is, this is a movie where every single thing that Steve Martin does is funny and, and he makes everyone around him funny as well. Well, by giving them chances and being uh, an incredibly gracious, like uh, in giving stage partner. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he, uh, after the jerk, he has a couple more big comedy specials, but his like film follow up to the jerk is pennies from heaven. One of the like biggest comedy films of the last few years. Yeah. And a movie that like makes Carl Reiner a, a like a like real director now mm. and commercial and critical success. Yeah. It, it was, it was big. Yeah. And, and, and like where he goes from there is no, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to team up with my girlfriend again and uh, we're going to make another movie uh, about the American dream like the jerk is. Uh, but instead of it being a, but instead of it being a romantic comedy that ends, you know, with, 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 ev- with everyone having a good time singing and dancing. Yeah. Even if it is in, uh, uh, uh like that film is ultimately about the delusion of ignorance, yeah. right? Uh, uh, but at least it ends in a way that allows you to be a bit happy as an audience member. Yes. And yeah. And he's like, yeah, so I, I, I'm going to go from making what one of the biggest comedies of the last few years to making a movie uh, where I play a rapist and uh, ruin multiple women's lives and uh, and it ends with everyone so much worse off than when they started. And it fucking bombed. And like, apart from Pauline Kael, critics don't like it. Well, this is a film that ends with Steve Martin being both literally and symbolically hanged yeah. while sadly speaking the lyrics to the song Pennies from Heaven while barreling the camera. And there's a song and dance after that, but it is like an aggressively, like it, the, the, the point of it being like, no, this is serious. That look at these repercussions. Yeah. They are doing it in a heavy handed way. The fun stops in this, in the way that it never does in the jerk. Right. Yeah. And like how you leave your audience is how they feel about the film. Would we love Jackass Forever as much as we sincerely do? If it ended with Johnny Knoxville dying from being hit with that bull. No, I think if you started the film like that and then did it in his memory, anything like that. I like how they weave much more into the narrative, like the long-term repercussions. Like seeing the ambulances arrive uh, is, is, is so much. No, but like, even if it didn't, if it didn't end with the spinning paintball yeah, war yeah. thing, which incredible uh, shit. Yeah. But if that own like that ending feels so, is such an endorphin rush and is so funny that you're leaving the film feeling great, mm. and then you think, on oh, the re- <laughs> remember when er- the bear is coming towards <laughs> Aaron and uh, falling through at the bed shop. Do you remember? Oh my god! And pennies from heaven. At the end, you're like so devastated. You don't want to look back on it because it's just like it just broke your heart. You don't want to feel about the relationship. Since I first saw Pennies from Heaven, I've always referred to it as an anti-musical in the same way that there are a bunch of like revisionist westerns that you can refer to as anti-westerns. This is a musical about deconstructing the tropes of a musical, showing how musicals lie to us and how if we were to like actually accept the worldview that they are pushing, like how awful and broken we would be i do um 
I, I, I wouldn't call this is almost specific. This is a pedant thing, but I feel it strongly enough to say it, which is like, I wouldn't call it the anti-musical in the same way that I don't call, I wouldn't call Unforgiven an anti-Western, but I absolutely know what you're saying. Well, I mean, like, sure, Unforgiven, I, I wouldn't, but like High Plains Drifter, oh, I would. The harder they fall. That's still like more, more, more like revisionist yeah. than anti, but, yeah. but well, sure. No, yeah. uh, what I think they are definitely are is postmodern. Yes. But, and because the way they all operate to, and I think connecting pennies from heaven and unforgiven is actually pretty fair in terms of what, how they interface with the genre sure. they are in. And it is that part of what they are doing to interrogate and open up, you know, to ask questions to see more elements of it. They're not trying to tear it down. They're trying to look at it from more angles. Yeah. And that involves kind of Once Upon a Time in America is the same as this is the gangster film, like uh, 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 doing it, sorry, doing it as much as possible, yeah. like turning the volume up. Like that is what Carpenter is at his best, and 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 from a different angle, Cronenberg is like, what is the limit? How far up? What if you start a film with a child with an ice cream being shot in the face? You know, and those aren't anti. I think those genres. I think they are um, committing more to see more of it. Sure, yeah. So how did this film? Because Pennies from Heaven. It is not, I'm sure, was a success at the time, but wasn't Potter's biggest thing, uh, um, I believe. So what, why did it get turned into a film? Who drove it? I mean, it is like credited as being a thing that like, makes Bob Hoskins' career. Like, yes, like, that's like, right. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, like, off of Pennies from Heaven, he, he, he gets the Long Good Friday. I mean, it's just, it's just Hoskins' Denny's, time. Denny's, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what, what a great time to be as well. Mm-hmm. It had done really well on, on British television. It had been this major breakout for the actors involved. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like uh, maybe uh, Steve Martin had seen the had, had seen the original series mm. and loved it. And, and and I mean, he's got two eyes and a heart, yeah. right? Wanted it to be his first dramatic role. Yeah. There is definitely a sense of like Man on the Moon Truman show to this, a bicentennial man. This movie is part of the reason that Pennies from Heaven doesn't have the same sort of stature as a lot of other, as a lot of other Potter stuff. Oh, but, but, yeah, because, no, that because, makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. It, it, there's like a bunch of copyright stuff involved. Because of we, the songs? Well, Potter bought the rights to it back from the BBC. Uh-huh. And they, I mean, NGM bought them off of him. And so Pennies from Heaven wasn't rebroadcast until like the 90s. Mm. You know, if that was five years earlier, when he bought the rights back, we probably wouldn't have it. The BBC would have just destroyed it if right. they no longer had the rights to it. I'm not entirely sure how, how, how like Herbert Ross got involved. I would guess he already had. But if you were building a list of people to direct this, you sure. put his name on it. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and if like he, he'd, he'd done all that work in England already, so like it, it's it's likely that Potter knew of him. He'd done all the work on Broadway. It's likely mm. like Martin or like uh, yes, yeah, likely Martin had worked with him or like Bernadette Peters. Mm. So yeah. How and, long had Martin and Peters been together at this point? They have been together at least since the Jerk. So by the time this comes out, it's like three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't know how, uh, like, you know, long-standing they were, I guess. Yeah. The premise of Potter's original show was there is a uh, down-on-his-luck sheet music salesman called Arthur Parker, like a working-class guy who, you know, wants more out of life. He is married to a woman called Joan. They don't get along. They have, like, different class backgrounds, and she is very sexually repressed while he 
wants to fuck all the time, uh, uh, and, and that leads to a lot of conflict between the two of them. And to our first, we, uh, uh, how do we learn about those two aspects of them? Well, they each get a song explaining them. Yeah. While Arthur is on the road selling sheet music, he uh, meets a young teacher named Eileen and becomes kind of obsessed with her, eventually like tricks her into sleeping with him, and then uh, ruins her life, ruins his marriage, gets framed for a murder, loses all his money, whatever. Standard uh, business, yeah. you know? And, and, and ends with him uh, being hanged for a murder he didn't commit. And, uh, but and, in a way where you're like, you kind of deserve this, <laughs> sure, but, yeah. you know? And then the movie has essentially the same plot. It I mean, obviously cuts out a lot of stuff. Mm. And every scene in the movie has a parallel in the show, but the songs that they're using to express those scenes are totally different. Oh, so it is. Why do you think that is, and how much does changing the songs change? I mean, uh, I, oh, I, I, and, and can I ask: in the original, are they singing live or are they lip syncing? No, no, it, it's, it's still it's it's always lip syncing. Okay, yeah, great. That's I think the thing that's like most important to Potter's conception of it. Oh, oh yeah, great. But you could also see a, a version where that it's that was Ross's edition. Sure. I'm sure part of it is is, is various copyright things, mm. but I think all of the changes to the movie, I think, do a lot of good work to uh, streamline it all. Mm. And they are making the points kind of like faster and sharper because they don't have the time of, of a nine-hour miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's compressed as opposed to rewritten. Yeah. And, and and the like other major thing is that is that is that in the series there are all these scenes of people lip syncing, but like there aren't really musical numbers, right? It's all it's all done on like a on like a British TV budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sets are all very small. And there even, are very, very and, few and, extras. And at that point in his career, on Dennis uh, Dennis Potter would be uh, successful. So these would be this would be high budget TV, but it's still. The BBC is a massive corporation that has to make economies of scale. But, yeah, yeah. And so what the movie does is it becomes a full-on, like, song-and-dance musical, which the original isn't. The series is, like, very focused on songs and what they mean, yeah. and, and this is much more about musicals and what they mean. Mm. Huh, yeah. The series, like, it has a lot of stuff about, about like, advertising in general mm. and, and, and about how, like, songs shape different parts of our worldview. There is a fantastic scene at the beginning of episode two of the series where the principal at Eileen's school is leading a school church service. Yeah. And at the end of the like Bible reading, he starts talking about some like mischief that's, that's been going on in the school, mm. and saying, "I've been hearing reports that that some of the boys in the school have been singing a version of God Save the King about our school's tomcat, and I and I will I will have you know that I will not stand for mocking our national anthem in our King's Jubilee year." And it's good shit. Yeah, in that scene, Dennis Potter is like making the point about like how the national anthem is selling us an idea yeah. Ju- just lo- just like how you know songs about love are selling us ideas mm. and like how this man's view of his own patriotism is so like contingent on one song and what this song means just mm. like arthur's views about romance have been so like warped by all these songs they are like the same plot basically getting at really different things in i think like interestingly different ways and potter like clearly has a different take for for each for each medium which i think is really cool yeah yeah no he is he's obviously a real talent mm. but like what he is incredibly good at is understanding the unique power of each medium mm. right like yeah. he understands what a musical number is generally what it feels like how it can feel and he knows how different that is on tv on stage and in film yeah and that is something that every writer struggles with and but you see when 
like like the 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 switching between levels of reality in singing detective it, it, to to one cohesive emotional story is the masterclass uh, in that and that clearly that runs through all of his work and you can see it here the 1981 movie it opens in one of the best ways you can open a movie which is a camera moving down through clouds with like with like lightning going on but, yeah. but oh those aren't real clouds it's fucking cotton balls with some flashing lights behind them yeah i love that shit so much there is something soothing of both like films like this and children's television yeah, about yeah. it there, there's something quite a wonderfully sesame street yeah and that's a compliment in both directions yeah and um uh yeah so yeah the 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 movie opens with with with, with like Arthur and Joan waking up in bed together and 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 like and and uh and Arthur is is like just about to go out on the road and 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 and, and, and like try and sell some and and like try and sell some sheet music and he wants to have sex with his wife before he leaves and she's like oh no come off it Arthur oh, come on I don't want to and and he is sort of slowly getting like pushier and pushier and more and more aggressive about it. Uh, it's and, uh, it yeah, sucks. And, and like th- this is and like the film. It, this is not us looking oh. at an old film and being like, oh, "Have you noticed that most '90s comedies are rape films?" It's like, yeah, no. This yeah. is what the film is telling you. It's yeah. deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. This film, the like two main things it's about, I would say, are musicals and rape culture and hand like and like how those things intertwine yeah this like sets up a dynamic between between arthur and his wife she is very like kind of mi- like middle class repressed yeah. he is like very open about his sexuality and he has this like view of love and romance that is informed by by all the songs that he sells but like there's also just kind of something about him that is inherently like pushy and desperate and and, 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 and uh 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 like skeevy yeah. it's not it, it's not an arthur miller like the all of arthur miller's fallen heroes you know the lowmans and death of a salesman are, are in similar positions like in terms of plot and emotionally but what they are are portraits of like fallen people trying to do their best whereas this is like Look at the grub at the bottom of this bucket. Yeah. Look how he wriggles, and it, and it's really interesting how just in how we meet him and ha- little changes in how he talks changes how we feel about him. Because I just didn't. As much as he's Steve Martin, he's a wild and crazy guy. Yeah. He just that spotlight just won't come on or go. You know, um, I just never liked him in this film, and I mm. immediately knew. Sorry, I immediately knew I wasn't supposed to. Mm, yeah. I just like, like, fuck this guy, you know? Yeah, this is maybe my favorite performance of his. And like, it, it is. Oh, like there is, there is the argument against that is that it's not really a Steve Martin performance sure. and not even in a dickish way. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It is how it does seem. The reason I'm okay with people calling Uncut Gems Adam Sandler's best performance when I believe the audience, the, the answer is emphatically Punch Little Drunk Mickey. Love. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Can't be right all the time, Finn. Um, Bedtime stories. Now, is the fact that Uncut Gems feels like an, a drama within the Adam Sandler verse of sure, comedies, yeah. whereas Punch Drunk Love is. Uh, uh, is a P.T. Anderson film, not an Adam Sandler film, in the way that Magnolia is a P.T. Anderson film and not a Tom Cruise film, you yeah. know? Um, but you were saying. But yeah, so it would be like first moment where we like really get a sense of how this movie is going to operate. 
is Arthur and Joan have gotten out of bed and he has like given up trying to get her to have sex. And, yeah. and she, she goes into the bathroom to, 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 to like brush her teeth. I feel like lighting changes on his face and the music swells up. He's lip syncing to a song about, you know, like love and hope and all this new stuff on the horizon. Yeah. And then it keeps cutting from, 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 his, from, from his like, from his like brightly lit face back to Joan br- br- brushing her teeth. And she is looking in the mirror and we see in the mirror behind him. No, we, we see behind her in the mirror, Steve Martin. Arthur standing mm. there, and 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 he he is he is back in reality in these shots. Yeah, he, he, he his 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 mouth was not moving. The light the light is not on his face, and it, and it cuts between those those shots of of their like drab normal life, and 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 his like much more hopeful inner world, which 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 he which he which he doesn't understand how 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 to like express to his wife. And it is. is- and normally, like that could almost be a hero song. I wish I mm. want to be where the people are. Thing, yeah. But it is the final nail in the coffin of like, come on. I get she's buttoned up, but you're the prick here, you know. Um, and it is that is where the push in ways of of song against content really strikes it big because it is kind of what we've had up to now is like emotional exposition, right? Whereas in this, the, the flatness of his affect in the real world, either side of the song really, yeah, it's Eisenstein shit, right? Like it, it it really, yeah, it's a squeeze a lemon on the whole thing in a way that is a great and also just incredibly complicated and skilled, you yeah, know? And, and like another one of the main differences between the movie and the series is that in the series, there is a like fade up and fade out of the music. And it usually happens like in camera, you, you'll hear the music start and you, and you'll see the lights come up. And then at the end of the song, you see the lights fade. But like what this does is like, it adds these like really like harsh cuts between, mm. between reality and fantasy. Often the music will like cut out mid song and you'll cut from this incredibly like lavish production number to like, to, to, yeah. to, to like Arthur driving along in his car. Yeah. To, to save on ink while printing, I assume they just said, let's take the smash part of smash cut yeah. as red. <laughs> yeah. There are like things to prefer about each one, but I like really love how brutal its approach to fantasy is in this. The first really big production number is 15 minutes into the movie when Arthur, when like Arthur goes to a bank, he has a meeting with his bank manager. It's a like stuffy older guy. Yeah. And he is basically like, uh, so, uh, we don't want to give you a loan. And, and like very subtextually, cause you're a massive prick. And like you're a loser and we don't think your business is viable. Yeah. It's not just that he's made a mistake. It's that he's deluded. Yes. Yeah. 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 That it, it's scornful is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. And his bank manager tells him, the only shot you have of getting a loan is your wife has a savings account. If you put that up as collateral, then we can give you a loan. That money was willed to his wife by her father, and she wants to keep it for their retirement. But he has this this like great belief in his own like his, his own like salesmanship. Yeah, you know he he thinks he's a real Jordan Belfort. He can sell you on anything. He has his finger on the pulse. He knows what songs sell. Well, and, and I ha- and this is again more connections to death of a salesman, which this is definitely like you know in conversation with, mm-hmm. and that's like. Not to say it's a ripoff or, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it is just, it's interesting to see what different angles are taken on, 
ultimately the same object across those two works. Yeah. In this scene with, with, with the bank manager, it is mostly shot in mid shots of the two of them sitting at a desk across from each other with, 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 with like occasional close ups for them talking. Yeah. And then Arthur gives his big, his big speech about salesmanship and about how, you know, with people like you in charge, no wonder the country's gone to shit. Yeah. And, and the, the, the like bank manager sort of looks at him and is like, goodbye, like, mm. like, get out of here. Yeah. And then it cuts out to this massive wide shot of the bank crashes back in on them yeah. and then they both turn to the camera and they're like do up do up do up do up do up do up da, da. Well, and then they, uh, they do a little kiss yeah and then a song called uh oh, the the, the oh, thing i want to yeah. stress is that this uh, uh, this is a particular moment of uh it's oh so quieting yeah. <laughs> another descendant yeah, yeah. of this which is the the cat you know the dancing mailbox in there yeah i think so elmo yeah Elmo's puppeteer. Yeah, it's yeah. not Elmo's puppeteer no, with Elmo <laughs> puppeteering the, the mailbox. You blow a fuse. Woohoo. The tail comes through. Yahoo. Um, anyway, cause you've fallen in love. Shh, shh. It's, oh, you know, you understand yeah. is that going from them inside to the big wide shot outside, uh, the color is saturated and the building is either a flat or a painting. Like we are, it, it, it is like cutting to a different film mm. and it should be delightful, but it's so abrupt. Like, but the do up, do it. Like what I want to, to, to emphasize about the joy of this is that it's these sudden collisions. They're mm. like sparks and explosions. It's delightful. Yeah. They lip sync to a song called Yes, Yes, My Baby Said Yes, Yes by Sam Brown and the Carlisle Cousins. Yeah, of course. Which is a big hit during the Depression. Yeah. Yeah, so then it is like Arthur and the bank manager like dancing down the hallways of a bank arm in arm and, uh, and Arthur being handed sacks and sacks of money. <laughs> it is uh, a v- very funny. Yeah. And then, of course, he's handed too much money and the bags overflow and he falls onto the mm. ground. And then there's a close up of just like coins falling onto his face. Well, and this is maybe the greatest moment of being like, oh, this is comedian Steve mm. Martin. This feels like a bit of Steve Martin business to yeah. remind you. He like falls down and, and, and there goes that shot of coins just falling on his face. And then it fades to a like Busby Berkeley overhead shot. And like 150 chorus girls like run run in from different sides of the stage, yeah. and yeah, and it is it is this like incredibly faithful, beautiful, lavish Busby Berkeley homage, and, and like it is like a weird Al homage in that it is both parodying in an absolute tribute to its source. Yeah, it is both going like, come on, Busby Berkeley, this stuff, right? Mm. But isn't it so fucking good? Well, it's so charming. Yeah, and 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 because like. If if you're going to critique the, the, the like sexism of 1930s musicals, Berkeley is an incre- is an incredible place to start. Well, but, there in that in that era there were many beautiful girls. <laughs> uh, go check out our singing in the rain episode. For people who aren't familiar with Busby Berkeley, he is one of the defining directors and choreographers of the 1930s. Hey, when you think of classical Hollywood. Uh, um, uh, musical numbers, you are probably thinking of either Busby Berkeley or, um, Bob Fosse. Yeah. And Bob Fosse is Liza, is Cabaret, is what turned into Rob Marshall, right? And, and uh. What a legacy. Legacy. What is a legacy? America, you great unfinished symphony, you sent for me. Hamilton <laughs> being in its push towards more minimalism and just like, show 
it's it's about focusing on we will put everyone in clean lines, clean colors, and just the spectacle is look at these people, look at their talent, whose natural successes include Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. He's oh, doing more Hamilton stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like what? Dun, dun, oh, dun, 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 oh God, dun, Jesus, Busby, Busby Berkeley. Ber- His like entire thing was the like first two thirds of a movie would always be. Just, just like a pretty standard, like kind of like like mu- musical comedy is like yeah. there's like a couple, there's like a couple songs, you know, pe- people fall in love, and then for the last half an hour, people put on a show, yeah. and you see the show, and it is the most insane, over the top, like sh- like human geometry shapes, <laughs> like like t- like t- t- like t- t- turning people into cogs in a machine, and and like shooting them. People have things where like two hundred core skills are moving perfectly in sync to like make the shape of a flower opening and closing. And it's incredible. Shot from these like bird's eye view angles. He designed some of the most incredible musical sequences ever ever put to film. The like thing about all his movies is they are about turning women into interchangeable cogs in a machine. Yeah, and, and there is always like one lead woman who who is the, the, the like the like prettiest or the youngest, mm. and, and and she like gets to rise above all the other chorus girls who become like nameless and faceless and are just used to to like kind of signify like status and mm. wealth and spectacle, and like it's great for good movies. That doesn't make them bad. But it's something that is like worth considering, mm. and like this movie makes it very clear that like in Arthur's like fantasies of of wealth and power, these Busby Berkeley style chorus girls are just another part of that, are just like a status symbol. There's a fucking like tap dancing bit where, where he's dressed like Fred Astaire and he is tap dancing down the stairs like. Like yeah, he he's tap dancing down the like white marble stairs of the yeah. bank, lead, like leading a hundred chorus girls, and like Steve Martin spent like six months training and dancing to to like do this film. Yeah, and you can see, yeah, like uh, he, he 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 pulls it off. He yeah. looks like he doesn't. So many times, like we just watched nine, mm. uh, uh, and Daniel Day Lewis in the musical bits does fine, mm. but he is an actor singing and dancing. In this, Steve Martin is convincingly a song and dance man. Yes, in his comedy, he has always moved so well, and he's had such oh, he, yeah, he's yeah. had such a great physicality. Well, like that's one of the compliments we threw it, even at the Pink Panthers' yeah, direction, yeah. right? He feels so natural in these scenes. It is such a triumph for him. As much as you know, his career would be a run of peaks and troughs mm. with successes at both ends. Yeah. But it is interesting that this did not, that the, uh, you know, even if this didn't make money, if I was elsewhere in, I think it's called Holly Weird, mm. I'd look at it and be like, there is so much more this guy can do. Yeah. There's, there's golden, them, their hills, if you know what I mean. Yeah. The like next movie he does out of this is Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is him using that classic Hollywood smarm that he has. Yeah. In like an even more over the top way. Prickishness, yes, could that, you go ab- with? Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The like next major thing is he is in a music store. The film all takes place in Illinois. He lives in Chicago mostly, but, but, but like travels around to other yeah. parts of the state. Uh, one day he is in a music store and he is trying to convince a store owner to buy a bunch of copies of a song called Roll On Prairie Moon, which is what the first episode of the series is like all based around the song. Yeah. And do I, I know that song, right? Like ma- yeah, maybe. Yeah, anyway, yeah. And like it. Yeah. And like, as he's being turned down by this music shop owner, he hears the door open. He looks over, he sees Bernadette Peters and he immediately falls in love with her. And, Here's the thing. Hmm. 
You get it. Uh, yeah. Uh, the thing, yeah, about Bernadette Peters in this, uh, is yabba dabba do. Absolutely. So in The Jerk, Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters are super hot and super charismatic. And, uh, and- oh, oh, like, uh, magnetic. Uh, they're just, they're on that list of couples that you just, you spend the whole time being like, but just kiss. <laughs> Come on, yeah. Come on, guys. You know, guys. <laughs> what if we? You know, it is so great to see them paired up again in this. I, I wish they'd made a bunch more movies together because I really want to see a straight romantic comedy with yeah. them. I genuinely want to see like Sleepless in Seattle with those two. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and, and like, <laughs> and, and and like it 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 is helped in this movie by 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 the fact that. Steve Martin is like playing way less doofy than he is in the joke. He feels like a real person here. Well, uh, he is clear. He's deploying the same skills, mm. but in distinctly yeah, yeah. a different direction. Yeah, and Bernadette Peters is so obviously a star. And well, yeah, she has the thing of her, the first time you see her, you're like, "Holy shit, <laughs> she's attractive!" And which I guess, like, the whole hubba hubba joke is the mask seeing Cameron Diaz for the first time. But then she has the great thing of, then she does a scene where you're like, oh, and you can act. So I'm, it's okay that I was just like hubba hubba. Like you're not, you know, when you're like hubba hubba and then you're like, you would just put in the film to make me feel that way. I hate this. One of the great points of equality, I think, uh, as a bisexual man, is that that's happening more and more with male Mm. characters or masculine characters. You can be like, hubba hubba, or you're just here to be eye candy. Yeah. uh, Feel less guilty about that, and that's sexism. So to the male community out there, I don't apologize. We've got a lot of work to do. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, you disagree? You oh, think no, no, uh, no, that I, gender I, I, equality is? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 uh, I realized I missed a major point, which is while Arthur is driving around Illinois, he picks up a man on the side of the road with an accordion, who is named in the credits the Accordion Man. It's a reverse Home Alone. In the original series, he's played by an actor called like, Kenneth Colley, and in this, he's played by a guy called like Vernal Bagneris. It was like I'm guessing Greek. Um, mm. in both versions, the accordion man is someone who is like even, even lower down on the social ladder than Arthur is. The original series has a like really developed sense of class and like how even the minutest differences in class status have like major social repercussions in, in like 1930s England in the original series and like still in this, but, but, but to like a less like specific extent. Well, and to state that comically fucking obvious uh, uh, relationships, class relationships are, oh man, such a, a fucking issue everywhere. Yeah. But in Britain, how that is discussed and represented, uh, people are much more willing to dress their class or yeah. identify that. And that is usually why it is more prominent. Yeah. And so the difference between the two of them is Arthur is like working class, but, 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 but like he is striving for something. He's, he's got dreams, yeah. you know, and, and, and then he sees this guy who is like, kind of like, who, 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 you know, is like clearly like homeless and kind of clearly mentally ill and, you know, and, and, and like speaks with a stutter. So he's scum. And, uh, I I have never uh, I recently saw a hero the mm. somewhat controversial Indian film. Oh. 
Iranian film. Yep. I'm so sorry. I went in my head. I went to say Persian, but because it is in the language Persian. But then I was like, that will sound like I'm being yeah, generic, yeah. and I was just like, it's an I country Indian. I'm so uh, sorry. Uh, uh, Irish, yeah, New yeah. Irish film, fiddle <laughs> dee, but uh, 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 um, which is uh, uh, as a film, an interesting object, but the performances are immaculate. Uh, uh, I strongly recommend it. But the lead character's son. Uh, uh, has a character whose arc is about addressing the fact that he has a debilitating stutter. Mm. And I had to really face the watching or discussing film, which involves someone with even a slight stutter that they manage uh, very well to the point that I don't even notice anymore, is something that would make me instantly furious Mm. and over time drive me to murder. Yeah. I cannot fault you for that. I have to, I just, I want to, I'm quite proud of that bit. I think tonally <laughs> it went well. I think you had a good response. But you understand that I'm doing a clearly oppositional joke there, right? Sure. So, there's a guy with an accordion. He is clearly homeless, clearly like men- like mentally and physically disabled. Yeah. And Arthur, he takes pity on him a bit. He like offers him a ride and he, he takes him out to eat at a diner. Mm. And and this and, is of course where we get this is both like supportive and like pitiable. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's not it's not as selfless as it wants to be. Yeah, this is where we get the title song. Yeah, this is where we get pennies from heaven. Where um where Arthur asks him, "How do you live? Where are you going to sleep tonight? Like, what keeps you going?" And it has that sense. Do you remember the meeting in the church of La Dolce Vita, mm. uh, where he meets with that that big intellectual, his hero. Uh, and, and is like, how right, do yeah. I live? And the, 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 his hero is like, well, I don't fucking know, but just live your life. And then he off screen kills himself. This scene has that sense of it's two people who don't know who think the other has the answer mm. on how to live. And the answer is um, money, is pennies from heaven, yeah. is luck. Well, yeah, and... and oh, sorry, did I just collapse a bunch of stuff you're going well, to unpack? No, but the walls of a diner slide back, and the accordion man steps out onto this massive soundstage, fake rain coming in from above. Yeah. And... It looks fucking tight, guys. Yeah. And he lip-syncs to the song Pennies from Heaven, which comes from a 1936 Bing Crosby musical called Pennies from Heaven, which... which, which a little convenient, if you ask yeah, me. Which I, like, watched in preparation for this. And it's actually kind of interesting because, like, the 1936 movie opens with a man being executed, and then, I mean, like, this is, I mean, like, that's how Penis Maven closes, which I, which I think is, which I think is, yeah. like, I, I think something that's well, almost definitely intentional on Potter's part. Well, and it is also the same kind of how you juice the audience mm-hmm. in that. Uh, 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 the start of a film is obviously vital when you're writing it because that is what people read. Mm-hmm. Uh, they read the first page and then they chuck it in the bin. But TV shows, you need to grab an audience instantly. Yeah. And that can define as much as how a film ends, how it feels. Mm-hmm. And like, again, that is another example of Potter just un- not even instinctually. Like, he has done the work, he was studious. Yeah. He has. And yet he is using these incredible, like, um, skills of, like, not manipulation, understanding to build something so uh, seemingly spontaneous and emotional. You know, it doesn't, uh, as much as we both love all of Alex Garland's films equally, um, they can at times, you can see 
the grid paper they were written on. Sure. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like that is the floor. And depending when you think it happens in Edgar Wright's work is when you start seeing the playbook and it, like, yeah. it starts feeling less organic, no matter how much you throw Matt Smith at it. It's also the Morbius problem, but pennies from heaven. Yeah. The character of the accordion man in this feels a lot like, a response to Bing Crosby's character in the original Pennies from Heaven, which is about like a sort of like itinerant wandering busker, a, a guy who just like sort of walks around with his loot, uh, you know, ma- ma- making a couple a couple dollars here and there, and 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 having like no like worldly ties. And that is a movie about him have, having a like family kind of forced upon him, and and like having to and and having to like give up his wandering and mm. like set into domesticity. Yeah, the accordion man is like. Kind of what actually happens when 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 you are around itinerant vagrant who who like yeah. l- who like lives off the charity of others, which is you don't fucking luck into a nice life and meet up with some kid who who decides that you're best friends and then you become his surrogate dad. There is this sense of to me this moment like this film is so sad, yeah, and I, I that is something we both like in films and. and this is the moment it feels dangerous. Do you know what I mean? This is where the threat starts happening, where you're like, oh, this is not a story about a fuck up who's going to get yelled at. You're like, this is a fuck up who's going to get beaten up. You know, this is. This is a story set in the depression. This is, this is a time when like. Whenever I'm watching a film is a time, is a film oh. set in the depression. He sings a song, Penis from Heaven, which is about every cloud's got a silver lining and, you know, things seem dark sometimes, but it's all going to come right in the end. And he does this dance, which is, he has this sort of like strange fluidity to him. And yeah. like way that he moves, his, his body sort of like turns into noodles. It is how I imagine Tom Noonan would dance sort of. It, like, it, it, it does it, seem animated rather yeah. than living. It, it, you know, when Bender dances in Futurama, yeah, yeah. it's like that. Yeah. One of the great things about this movie is that like every single musical number has a totally different look and feel to it. Yeah, the, the, in, tremendously so. Yeah, they all take place in different environments, and like the way that he uses the camera, the way that he uses lighting, the like way that he stages it is different every single time. Yeah, and like really speaks to all of the decades he spent as a choreographer yeah. and a like director of musical theater. Yeah, so this scene ends with we can like cut back to the diner. And Arthur kind of like tosses the accordion man like a dime or like, t- like yeah, t- t- 10 or 20 cents or something. Yeah. And t- tells him like, go on, feel rich. And then as Arthur gets up to leave, uh, the accordion man like comes over and like grabs his hand, and tries to kiss it. Like, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and like in, and like in both versions, th- this is when Arthur like becomes disgusted with him. Yeah. Like, like, like he, 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 he the moment he becomes pitiable or pathetic no the moment he becomes pathetic rather than uh like pitiable mm. someone you can care for he the moment he isn't involved he's disgusting yeah. yeah and like especially in hoskins performance there is like a real sense of don't fucking act like i'm better than you yeah we, we are both fucking working class yeah. have some fucking pride in yourself it, it gets into the like the class stuff really really interesting in, I- in, 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 the, in, in the series I really need to go back and do a run through all of his stuff because I'm sure that would be rewarding. But I really want to check this out because Hoskins and Martin seem so different, but are both perfect for this role. And as you say, that sense of Hoskins pride, as you say, his his resolute, uh, um, his his absolute refusal to be embarrassed. changes the pride of this character he stops being naive and starts becoming proud which is 
just an equally legit call to tell the same story. Yeah. It's, and, and like that it has that flexibility only makes it better, in my opinion. Yeah. After this like dinner scene, it goes to a couple of days later at Eileen's school and we see her teaching her class. She teaches a bunch of eight and nine year olds. Yeah. And she is reading them the story of Rapunzel and the fucking way that Bernadette Peters reads the story is one of the most like vulnerable things I've ever seen on film. It is <laughs> so. She 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 is she is like at the part of the story where Rapunzel lets her hair down and the prince climbs up and he climbs in the window and she sees him for the first time and and is like shocked because she's never seen a man. Mm. I mean, a bunch of the boys in the class start laughing and she gets this look on her face, which is like kind of angry but also understanding of like why they think it's funny. She she goes, "Of course, you boys are laughing, but his face was so nice and his eyes." was so kind that the moment she saw him and it's like oh like yeah you feel it yeah several episodes ago i was like we are gonna watch uh, we're watching eight and a half and nine Mm. and uh uh-oh i went to check our version of nine works and oh no it might be good but then uh, uh, uh the moment i think that is because that film opens with Daniel Day-Lewis in handheld black and white talking, just making eye contact with a reporter mm. who's just off beautiful grainy black and white saying one of the things Fellini said, which is, you know, you kill a film every time you make it, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And, and Daniel Day-Lewis, sorry, Daddy Day-Lewis is so good at delivering shit like that. And it feels so genuinely like him giving the speech to uh, uh shown from the back Paul F. Tompkins in There Will Be Blood, where you're like, this is a thing that is happening and we are watching it and we are seeing, we are being allowed a window into a real person in a real moment. Mm -hmm. And that is also what this feels like. And the fact that this film has space for that in it as well, without like, imagine if Xanadu, which has about the same balance of drama and music. Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, attempted something like that. Well, it did. And you were just like, oh, fuck off. Yeah. Whereas in this, even though it's a gearer, you know it's going to end bad. Uh, you so, In that moment, you're like, please, can there be some grace? And it's sour because you know there won't be. Yeah. It's um, This is an incredibly strong film. Mm. And under talked about yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it was like basically buried by mgm after it bombed this is a film that from the description like like ishtar pennies from heaven in description sounds like an like a uh editorial mistake do you know what i mean you're like there's no way those elements can add up and be good and with ishtar as like Elaine May is one of the forgotten greats. She made yep. two top 50 all-time films. One that's very good. Very good, yeah. And Ishtar, which isn't. Which, which, it, has, incre- which has some incredible scenes and yeah. it doesn't really add up. Yeah, but and so does Shrek, you know? <laughs> like, like it, it, and but with this, so you can understand why. And, like, in a sense that, like, maybe controversially, like, Days of Heaven... I like even the reconstruction. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is as bad as and boring as I thought it would be. But Pennies from Heaven is just proof that it is execution. And it's not just execution from a titan of the form, Dennis Potter. It is from workman. I've forgotten the director's name. Herbert Ross. From a workman director, Herbert Ross, a workman musical director. Mm. And from Steve Martin trying something new and Bernadette Peters and everyone like 
we're going to talk about Walken soon. Yeah. And it is just everyone being like, I get what this mix is. I get, I get the juice we're blending here and doing it perfectly. And like, if Ishtar had had that, it would be good. Yeah. But it is the, uh, I can understand why people buried it. If you're a business person looking at it on paper, you're like, yeah. why, you know, the scene being cuts to another incredible musical number. Uh, so Bernadette Peter starts lip syncing to a song called love is good for anything that ails you. Mm. And, and, and like, as she starts singing, there's like a cut to the classroom is no longer like, like drab Browns and, mm. you know, like educational posters hanging up and kids have these shitty little discs. Now the room is like kind of pure white. And she is wearing this like very cleavagey, like like spangly silver dress. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, and it's kind of funny. Yeah. Instead of discs, all, all, all the kids in the class have, have like tiny grand pianos and they're all wearing like sailor outfits. The aesthetic thing I equated it to with Finn is, you know, the office in the apartment. Yeah. yeah. Just the sense of infinity, except you can see the fact that some of them are children. It's. Yeah. yeah. It's three months of her dancing around the class as these like kids are doing are doing like tap dance routines on top of the grand pianos and like and like miming and like like miming playing trumpets and saxophones and stuff as a kid with some drums who's incredible. It's wondrous and heartwarming. Yeah. It, it is the same kind of soaring hope for art that you get that children performing can give like the final gig at the end of school of rock as much as that's a ridiculous thing to say there is something about the way this film understands like not the purity but the even just the presence of children's how much there are juices things up yeah it's really lovely yeah i mean i mean like after the scene we're like back at eileen's house and uh and it and it is night, and Arthur shows up, mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, 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 she uh, does not remember seeing him in, in, in the music store. She has no idea who he is. Yeah, and he sort of like stands it. He, he he like stands at her screen door, and 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 just like and 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 and, and sort of just like begs her to to like let him come inside, and says like you're the woman I've been waiting for my my, my entire yeah. life, and he he cajoles her into letting her into like letting him come inside the house, and. Then there's a scene of him sitting on the couch and he is hitting on her. He's like testing her boundaries a bit. And then he like accidentally mentions his wife. Again, there's almost like a Steve Martin that just slid out kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, 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 and there is, and there is this like classic look, there, there is this classic like Steve Martin. Oh, I just fucked up look on his face. And, and then, I mean, I mean, he transitions. Oh, like emotional slapstick, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and then he transitions that in, into it. And, and, and then you 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 like sort of see his face change as he's like, I just mentioned my wife. How how do I come back from this? Mm. And then he starts telling her a story about how his wife died in a motorcycle accident, and this leads to him crying and leaning on her. And eventually, he is grabbing her breasts and like forcing her down onto the couch. And she, uh, buddy, not yeah. again. And, and like this is doing what's the riffin film that everyone hates. Only got the guess. Yeah, the one that Ryan Gosling is a stunt motorcyclist in the sphere. No. Is that? Oh, only that's, God, that's Place Beyond the Pines. Oh, right. Which is we, not a, uh, yeah, not a yeah. reference. It's uh, the one in Bangkok, Only yeah. God Forgives, yeah. with where Orson Welles is the ship brother. <laughs> His second most villainous yes. role after The Souvenir. Absolutely. So. Uh, See m- you at the end of the year, The Souvenir. So my, my, my thing about like why Only God Forgives is actually good, even though everyone hates it, mm. is like it is Nicholas Winding reference response to 
it to, to to like a generation of men watching Drive and being like, this is the coolest guy ever. Yeah. And and and, and which and, is not in that film. Yeah. And like what he does in Only God Forgives is Gosling is playing essentially the same character, but like everything is just like tweaked the tiniest amount to turn him into the world's biggest fucking loser. Well, it goes wrong. Yeah. Him not talking moves from being the like strong silent type to him seeming like he is autistic and actually can't like interact with people. Yeah. It's been a while since I've since I've since I've seen it. But like basically it is like tweaking stuff just enough to come very unpleasant. Yeah. And like this scene of Arthur tricking Eileen into having sex with him is I think like Ross and Potter doing that exact same thing with like how romance works in in classic musicals. Yeah. If yeah. you watch like an American in Paris or It's Always Fair Weather or Silk Stockings, like any like any classic American musical from the like from the like forties through to the sixties, it is it is always this thing of like a man browbeating a woman into falling in love with her. That like uh, 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 and and that was uh, an accepted narrative uh, uh, across all genres. It's in romantic comedies. It's yeah. in musicals. It's a lot of screwball comedies. Yes. Like his girl Friday is a man bullying his ex-wife into coming back to him. Yeah. But even like the first quarter of Thunderball is James Bond doing it to a nurse. Like it is how he is drawing he's not just drawing something to that annoys him it is like a major problem he is underlining yeah, here. yeah they are the only difference here is that like arthur is slightly sleazier than most other men are he, he is like slightly more forceful and and, 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 and we and, don't like him and the like way that eileen rejects his advances is like is like slightly more like desperate than 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 than, mm. than in earlier movies yeah and, and so ju- ju- just those like little tweaks like to, to turn it from a scene of classic Hollywood romance into oh no this this is this is clearly a sexual assault yeah and and then the button on top of the scene is as Arthur is like forcing her down onto the couch she is like sort of like starting to give in a like white transition comes across the screen got a little like heart cut out in the center of it and the heart just like ends up over their faces as he is having sex with her on the couch and it is I realized. Like, that is so obviously sarcastic. Yeah. And that was one of the elements. The treatment of these sequences is the key thing that I read as superficial, Mm. which I think is a valid way to see it for the first time. And it is it is seeing them again with the depth that is elsewhere that turns this film from one I'm like, sure, to being like, oh, no, guys. Check, check it out, you yeah. know? I think that around the time I first saw Pains from Heaven, I also saw the Agnes Varda film Le Bonheur, the good times or the good hours or whatever. Which is I a, don't think I know it. Oh, it was playing in the film festival in 2019. It is a like late 60s film from her, and it is about a man who, who was like happily married to, to, to you know, a beautiful woman with like, with like two lovely kids, and... Then what? And then one day he 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 like is at the post office and he sees one of the like post office ladies and he just like decides he has to have her. He he heartbreak kids. Yeah, and like for a while it's going great. You know he, he has his life with his wife and he also has this like second life with this younger woman. And I mean like eventually he decides to tell his wife about it, and and he's like, hey, I love you both. You so know, he really heartbreak kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, you know he's like, I'm a farmer tending to an orchard. 
why would I just pluck an apple of one tree when I can pluck apples of many trees? And, you know, what if, what if I had multiple arms? What, what if I had four arms so I could take apples off as many trees as, as I could? You know, yeah. it, 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 it and is, they just beat him to death, right? They well, just, it, like, kick, kick him in the shins until he can't breathe, it, it, right? It, 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 it is this, like, a beautifully embarrassing moment yeah. of, of, of this guy just, like, desperately trying to explain to his wife why he should, why she, why he should be allowed to fuck someone else. And then the wife sort of seems to, like, be okay with it. This is, like, while they're out on, like, a family picnic. And then they all take a rest, and uh, when he wakes up, she is gone. And uh, and he, like, takes a walk around to look for her. There are a bunch of people gathered by a pond, and he sees that uh, she is drowned in the pond and probably killed herself. Yeah. and She's and, affiliated in this yeah. case. Yeah, and the, like, way the film ends is uh, uh, his wife is buried. There's a funeral. Uh, the new lady moves in, and then it's just him and the new lady and the kids, mm-hmm. and it like ends with, uh, with, with with them like kind of walking off happily into the distance, and and the, and the like Ugh. first of the, and the like first time I saw that movie, I was like, holy shit! I, I don't I don't think I like this. This is this this is so like French. It's so like casual about 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 like infidelity. <laughs> that is something you do say a, a lot. Yeah. I do. Uh, this is too French. It's too casual about infidelity. Which I want to be clear is something I also really rub up against in in French film. Yeah, but like then I kept thinking about it. I like read a little bit about Agnes Varda because like that was the first movie of hers I I, I ever saw. Oh wow! And, and yeah, I, I, I started with the Gleaners and I, right, which yeah. is so much about her, which it, it was entirely accidentally, yeah. I guess, the perfect way to meet her. And absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I like read a bit more about Agnes Varda, and I was like, oh no, everything in that movie is is so deeply sarcastic. It, it it is operating on like such a level of scathing irony it is it is a movie like mocking all the other french movies made by men who are like oh i love my wife but uh i love this other woman as well and no like why should i not have birth well, that is what pennies from heaven is doing is the like same sort of just like deep unpleasant irony oh in regards to like how it represents rape culture and it is doing it in a way that is uh that holds the weight yeah i guess and, and, and because there are these kind of safeguards around that it alludes to it it alludes to it uh, and obviously there are there are moments of abuse in the film but it is never tantalizing and it's not like in in the way that this film is still a work of the male gaze uh and uh in the case of the writers the male gaze eli matthewson and chris parker um no it, it is that it it's still exploring those things even when like vada is at, at the very least not working in the male gaze mm. and like if at least it's not in a deliberate attempt at a female gaze, it's certainly a gaze that spends a lot of its time rolling its eyes, you sure, know? Yeah. And, and that this film is, and to be clear, I, I stand by my statement that, that, uh, uh, Agnes Varda is the, the ne plus ultra of, of the French new wave. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, so embarrassingly the best that, uh, uh, we should be at points hostile to the prominence of Truffaut and Goddard uh, uh, and because her nearest competition is of course her husband Jacques Demy but and I know they were sl- they were the left bank or left were. field but it's still you know what I'm saying sure. um uh, 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 Tusk is still an A24 film I guess <laughs> you know and to be clear I think it's the best A24 film yeah it's <laughs> 
It's Tusk. It's a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan the <laughs> yeah. Third. It's well, other shit. Yeah, the Green Knight. No, no, the Green Knight is <laughs> what a stinker. Um, uh, it, and it is that the the um that they are doing something that she was doing in you know Vada is great and was n- but was never even really mainstream in France. Mm, yeah. There are a couple of her films that did did go big and, and was always respected within the creative and critical community. But that this film is making that point in a deliberately populist pop art way with the same amount of nuance. Is again I'm just stressing again, like there's so much you could unpack in this Steve Martin jukebox musical yeah. about a hustler who has a bad time, you know? Just check it out, I think, AMO. We're making a podcast about it, but it is also standard caveat. We're talking, unpacking it like it's the fucking uh, 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 Damien Hurst shark cut in two. Just called, I believe, the impossibility of death in the, in the minds of the living. Yeah, no idea. Uh, so yeah, fr- from uh, from there, everything uh, goes badly. Yeah. So Arthur goes back to his wife. She agrees to let him have the money to, to start his record store. Uh, Eileen becomes pregnant and is forced to leave her job by by the principal. Yes, yeah, so she 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 is she is forced to leave her job. Uh, the next major thing that happens is one of my two favorite scenes of the movie. Which, How do you pick? But anyway, uh, well, well. So this scene, mm. uh, Eileen, pregnant, jobless, goes into a bar, and uh, she is approached by a man named Tom. It's played by Christopher Walken. Yeah, in an incredible suit, hair slicked. Like, slick down the sides, neatly parted in the middle, beautiful moustache. This is what him in the Weapon of Choice music video is a reference to right down to the style of dancing. Yeah, yeah, like, it, like Walken in the scene is, like, one of the all-time great one-scene performances, yeah. and, and it, it, is, it is one of those... I, I was, and this is another point, mm. when you come into the scene only watching the film's surface level, which is still a good level. It's just sure. fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, you get to the scene and it just feels like an excuse to have a Walken cameo. You just, you want to bounce off it so hard. And so I, I was like, yeah, cool. I know he can sing and dance, but now following like the levels of what this is about, as mm. opposed to what the, the events and plot are. Yeah, you are right. It yeah. is one of the one scene performances he knows exactly how to hit the ball, and he hits a home yeah, run. And, it's incredible. Yeah, and it completely changes the temperature of the film. Yeah, and, and pressure goes up. The danger feels even closer. Yeah, he is uh, basically a pimp. It's like uh, uh, a Ladouche mm. in that will like as a tribute to the 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 places is it is not stated but directly alluded to you know as yeah. they would in 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 the 40s and 30s yeah. you know he is this like five minute scene where he is trying to convince her to sleep with him and it ends with a song called let's misbehave which musically i think is the most kind of generic of the film it's mm-hmm. the most standard musical which which adds on me bouncing off this right but that kind of genericality the the sense of inherent pop to it 
emphasizes and and Walken's like slithery wiggling dance you know what it looks yeah, like when yeah. Christopher Walken dances is like oh no it is this is like what we can only assume is going to be the aesthetic of Gerwig's Barbie and that it is like the popness the artificiality of this is doing something mm. it's not just it is not quote unquote just a song in a musical like nine. Yeah. And I think this, this is one of the like strongest juxtapositions between like what the song is yeah. about and what, the, yeah, and, yeah. like what the scene is doing. Oh yeah. And this is, it's just worth stressing the first time. Cause the, again, the convention of the, mu- of the musical numbers is still, we are seeing what is inside someone's mind. Yeah. And now as we break into the end, into the third act, that mark, that is marked by, for the first time, that is not him thinking about that that is her seeing him and imagining him doing it so it is it's the game of the songs is expanding and growing across the film yeah in the like lyrics of the song let's misbehave by irving aronson and his commanders it's it's about like a guy trying to convince his girlfriend to break some arbitrary social mores and like let's have fun while we're young sort of thing it's like a playful cheeky song oh yeah it's it's a very kind of and again not to be dismissive like boy band let's have let's go out there and uh party till the sun comes up sure yeah but in the context of a scene with christopher walken's extended tap dancing striptease it changes the song into something that is like a lot darker right his dancing up a scene is like is, is like so elegant and playful and it's, it's like cheeky and risque. It is so clear that like he is just having fun. There's some mucking around. And then there are all these cuts back to Eileen where she is just like, like stock still on the verge of tears throughout the whole thing. In movies, when striptease dancers are like usually portrayed, it is a sort of like submissive act. Or, or a, de- or a, 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 a or, one of being cowed and degraded. It yeah. is, it is, it is. Uh, a piteous yeah and like here he is like, stripping throughout the scene but everything about his physicality and the, like way the scene is set up makes it so clear that like by him stripping he is degrading her he, yes he, he is forcing her into submission mm. through, through this act that usually is presented as degrading to the person doing it and yeah he, he is a, there's a bit where, where he's like dancing with a few other sex workers and for like they're all like dancing along the line he's like he's like grabbing and manhandling their breasts and there's a bit where he's he's tap dancing on a pool table like in in like front of a wall of pictures of naked women every single it sucks. It every, sucks. every single yeah. detail about the scene is driving home like no he is in his fucking element here and she like she she is such an outsider she has nowhere to go she she cannot get out of this and then of course the dance ends and Walken has one of the most chilling line readings of all time, where he tells her, "You better not be a tease." And then you know, there's a great shot of of, of Eileen. She's like trying to look confident and sexy. She's like a tease, and it cuts back to him, and he no. says, "So I'll cut your face." Yeah, it like continues to do the thing that the rest of the film was doing of being like. In all of our media from the thirties, about the thirties, everything is so like nice and, and, and like, and like everything always ends up okay. When we look at the past media, we are always looking at fantasies, mm. well, right? So, do you know what Fred Astaire said about pennies from heaven? No, and I'm terrified. So, so like, like obviously I love watching Fred Astaire. He is an incredible performer. He, one of the greats. Yes. But like he was someone who was rich throughout the thirties. He was totally protected from the ravages of a depression. He was living in, and, living in an insular world. In the like early 80s, when he was an old man, he, he was asked to comment on Pennies from Heaven. And he said, I have never spent two more miserable hours in my life. Every scene was cheap and vulgar. They don't realize that the 30s were a very innocent age. 
And like, I think that for anyone working on Pennies from Heaven, hearing Fred Astaire say that is like the best compliment you can get to the movie. It works so fucking well. What they're trying to do with the movie was so effective yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that Fred Astaire said, I fucking hated it and it made me feel bad about, <laughs> about myself, my place in history. And that, I think, is good. Yeah. yeah. No, so that was, to be clear, I was doing a joke him up. There was a blind girl that Arthur met earlier in the movie, and he had this sort of encounter with her. And then a few scenes later, we see that blind girl walking back under the like same overpass that she was walking under before. And this time, the accordion man is sleeping under there. Mm. And, and he tries to offer her some food, but she is terrified of him. And, and the scene ends with him maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, killing her. I mean, due to some coincidences, the... the- yeah, there is a bit in, in, in tribute to uh, 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 the era f- which it is parodying, there is a bit of, like, plot schmooing. Yeah. It just, like, it, it. it's less that it elides time or plot beats so much as it just, like, it, it, waves, it, it waves its hand in a cut and it's like, yeah. you, get, you get it, you get it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the 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 uh, the police start to think that Arthur is responsible for the killing, and he gets back, and Arthur yeah. gets back together with Eileen, and there is another uh, uh, there is another uh, uh, fantastic Bernadette Peters scene where where, where, where like she where, where, where like Arthur meets her at her house again, and now she she is kind of like fully you know got like gone bad you know like. Her, 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 she she's Glenn Close in um f- fatal attraction yeah 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 like, yeah like her 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 like sexual her sexual experience with Arthur like and 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 her like essentially being forced into prostitu- prostitution by Tom ha- has like awakened something in her yeah. and now and now she is no longer repressed and she 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 like wants to be bad it, it is it is uh, uh what year is this uh the 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 movie or the it is. It's. 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 From, it's. Nineteen eighty-one. Uh, uh, yeah. No. Because I. No. Because the TV show couldn't be this. But the. Um. The film. This very much. What this put me in mind of is, is what I think this is directly reacting to is Greece. Right. Yeah. Is that this is taking which is. Uh, slightly outside of the purview, I think. But it is clearly riffing on Sandy. You know. Mm. What's it to you, stud? That stuff, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, and and how uh, uh, troubling that is to 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 unpack a very well known issue in a very well known film. Yeah, and 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 and, and yeah, and and in the scene, and in the scene, Bernadette Peters lip syncs to a song called "I Want to Be Bad." By Helen Kane, mm. who was the physical and vocal inspiration for Betty Boop. Yeah, and, and, and she is doing the, like very Betty Boop style of like yeah. kind of like high pitched, like cutesy, but also like heavily sexualized singing. Well, and, with, and, with, and she's with like like boop boop a doop things, but she's also doing like writhing Sid Cerise dancing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is oh, uh, how do you put it? It is like uh, she is. It is tragic. But without the, 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 the tragedy of it in her performance and how we look at it is so clear mm. that you're never faced with like the sick, the sex abuse version of Goddard's war problem. There's no point where you're like, you know, like imagine if Rodriguez said that Salma Hayek's snake dance in, in a dusk till dawn was supposed to be a comment, you know? Sure. Whereas yeah. in, in this, you couldn't think it was anything but. You know, this is not the bit of the film 
I think the directors or writers masturbate to, I guess is what I'm saying. But that is uh, uh, actually quite important and a real strength, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and so after the scene where 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 we kind of newly sexually woken Eileen and Arthur get back together, they basically decide to go on the run. They go to his record store and they destroy all of his records, and they go off to like try and like live a free life and like start from scratch. Well, and, and the thing that that because them they they kind of flamboyantly but dully destroy all these records, yeah. and it is that the, it feels it feels real and painful. Like like the other thing a hero has going for it is that there are a couple of brief moments of violence, and they are real human, clumsy, tumbling people, just kind of scuffling fights. Yeah, and this feels like that to a record shop. But the and the reason that really struck me is just like in almost any other musical. That would be a song. You'd be singing while you do that. Yeah. But in here, no, we just have to deal with deal with your fucking consequences, punks. Oh man. Yeah. There's another scene with Joan who who like hasn't really shown up for a while. No. And when we last saw her, when she walked out on him, it, it, there is given a sense. At least my sense at that moment is that she has walked out of the film. Mm. And so it is a real surprise to see her return. She's being interviewed by the police who are searching for Arthur and are, and are trying to like get clues about where he is. Mm. And she at first is, is like sort of and kind of like wary of them. And then they hint that he has been involved in the murder of a young girl. Yeah. And, 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 which has been mentioned a couple of times in the background. I think it's like a news headline. Well, it's, it's a news headline a couple of scenes later. Oh, yeah. But it is also like, this is not the first we hear of it. It's yeah. been set up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. The police ask her if Arthur has ever done anything uh, like sexually weird or like perverse. Well, and it, it's very coded, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, have you seen... Uh, uh, the Salesman, the Iranian film. No, no. Oh, I was just thinking about it because it's the same guy as a hero. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, The Salesman is a film that is about a woman who is sexually assaulted. Right, yeah, She yeah. is raped, to be clear. But because of censorship laws in Iran, they can't say that yeah. at all. They talk around it. When they describe the event, it's a lesser event. Uh, to get around censorship laws, but you 100% understand uh, uh, this is that as well. Like, sure, they, yeah. they don't say the word, but you know. Yeah, and there is a thing earlier in the movie when, like, he comes home from one of his trips and, like, she, as a show of peace, tells him that she has uh, put lipstick on her nipples, which is the thing that he is apparently into. And there is, there is yeah. and, and she, like... like it's an interesting choice. Because it does, it, that feel, you know, even that as a thing is like, there is something about that that is, uh, you know, v- like dirty and violent and like grimy. Yeah. Yeah. And Maybe she, that's she, just me being just a vanilla sis. But well, yeah. And she, 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 she like hints about that to the police and they, 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 they basically take it as like, Okay, he's he's definitely the murderer then. Yeah. I mean, she gets like a couple of great close-ups where she just shouts something like, I, I want you to cut his thing off and bury it in the ground. And, uh, it's incredible shit, everyone. And then the like next major scene is my, is, is like probably, is probably my favorite scene. Yeah. Which is the one where, which is the one where Arthur and Eileen go and watch a movie. Yeah. So yeah, they, your favorite scene yeah, near the yeah, end. They, uh, they go and see a movie. Now, they shouldn't be able to see this movie actually because this movie, in in, in a, like a, a, 
There's a, there a card at the beginning of the movie that says this is happening in 1934, and this movie did not come out until 1936. What a flub. Also, the song Pennies from Heaven didn't come out until 1936, and there is another, there is a billboard for a movie, for, for a, I think, like, Carol Lombard movie called, like, a Love uh, like Love After Breakfast, mm. uh, uh, which also came out in 1936. So, a bunch of fuck-ups there. But, they go and see a movie called Follow the Fleet, which is an Astaire Rogers musical comedy. And, like, until a few days ago, I was only familiar with Follow the Fleet from this scene. That roughly makes sense, yeah. I guess. And then in preparation for this, I went and watched the whole movie to, to like, get context for this scene. And so, like, what happens is they go to the movie, they're watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and they're, like, scene starts with a big, like, bunch of lights behind Fred Astaire. It, it, it's not super clear what, what the background is. There's the impression of the thing that made it's seeing it again in the darkness, the thing I immediately thought of is the endless staircase in A Matter of Loaf and Death. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the Preston... The Powell in Pressburg and my favorite singular yeah. filmmaker film. Yeah. It is Fred Astaire in a tuxedo. He, at the start of the scene, is holding a little like, gun in his hand, and he's about to put it up to his head. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees Ginger Rogers coming out of the same building he just came out of and, like, stepping up onto a balcony about to kill mm. herself. This is all what this, the new thing this brings, mm. apart from, like, showing us an actual thing of the time, is, like, it is being like, look, he's pointing a gun at himself. He's a, he's considering suicide. Yeah. In our film, this wouldn't be a song. What is this like if it's a song, you know? Uh, yeah. He sees Ginger Rogers stepping up onto the ledge to throw herself off. That, and that, like, snaps him out of, of wanting to kill himself. He, yeah. And he, he, goes, he goes and helps her down. I mean, he shows her the gun that he was going to kill himself with, and he throws it away. Mm. And then he starts to sing a song called Let's Face the Music and Dance. And then they do a dance. And, like, as... When Fred Astaire starts to sing on the screen, uh, Steve Martin starts to lip sync along with him, and 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 he and he he's looking at Bernadette Peters. He just has this incredible, like wide-eyed sincerity to him, and he's lip syncing along to the song about life is going to fucking end. Yeah, we have no idea how long we've got, so let's try and find some happiness with each other. As the film keeps playing, Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters they get up and they walk to the front of a the movie theater. And they stand under the screen. And then they are no longer just lip syncing. They are also dancing along with the Sierra Rogers. They're doing the same dance move. This feels like Sherlock Jr., mm. like him approaching the screen yes, and yeah. it kind of beginning to. The line between worlds blurring in a way that it has. Up until now, it's all been hard cuts. Yeah. And now it is smooth at the saddest point. Yeah. It is uh, such subversion of. Of convention. And then after like a minute of them dancing together, there is a cut. And now and now they are inside the film. Yeah. And and, and now he and, and it looks like it's it's entirely just them shooting a version that looks like it themselves, yeah. right? Mm. But it looks like an incredible job of Forrest Gump or modern style inserting people into old footage yeah. tech. It, it, it's it's an incredible job. You don't question it. Yeah. And now Arthur is dressed like Fred Astaire and Eileen is dressed like Ginger Rogers and they continue to, to do the dance. And then like, then like a bunch of other guys in tuxedos come out and, and they all have canes and there is, there's, there's like a tapping it, thing with the canes. It looks like, you know, they, mm. yeah. they went back and kidnapped people from that time. A- absolutely. It is, it's, yeah, and, and, it's, and, it's goo goo gaga crazy. Yeah, and, 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 and there is, there, 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 there is this like fantastic showdown between, between Arthur and Eileen and, and, and these guys with the canes who like slowly encircle them and mm. then like and then and then and then like scenes with 
with, with, with all the guys kneeling and like mm. putting their canes on the ground. And then the canes will rise up to create jail bars. Mm. And, and, and then scene ends with like Arthur gripping onto the bars. And so for, for like years, I had assumed that that was how the, the like rest of the dance in Fall of the Fleet went. Yeah. But uh, that, uh, as someone who didn't do the research, I, I would, I made the same assumption. Yeah. And, 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 and so it turns out that like once they cut to like Arthur and Eileen inside the movie, that is all entirely different. So it is not a remake. It is new. It's quote unquote new material. Yeah. And like what happens in Fall of the Fleet is, that is a like stock standard naval themed musical romantic comedy, and and that bit at the end where 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 they where they're all dressed up and and considering suicide is not a part of the plot at all. That is near the end of the movie. It's a musical from the thirties. Like they need to put on a show to raise some money. Oh, so it, so it, it is. It is a fiction with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is, that is a dance that, that the two of them come up with. The like premise of that dance is we just lost all of our money at Monte Carlo. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like, 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 yeah, it is a beautiful dance and like, and like in full of the fleet, it is like a four minute dance. It's all done in one take because they didn't uh, realize you could cut yet. So in pennies from heaven, this sequence where, where they recreate this Steve Rogers scene and then go into the film is so moving and it's so tragic. And then, and then, and then in the original movie, it has no dramatic yeah. or emotional stakes at all. So, it, and- it, it is just two people who are who are already in love and friends doing a fun dance to raise money. It, it, is, it, is, it is. It is so crazy. It is. It is in the best in the way of the best climaxes of all films is the film in microcosm. Yeah. Right. It is like look at this thing that means nothing. Yes. Now look at the tragedy and look at this man who means nothing and look at the tragedy he brings. Ah, uh, oh, mate, easy to miss, but when you've caught it. It's a tasty fish, this yeah. film. Yeah, so then they leave the theatre, and, and that is when there is a, like, newsy outside sell, 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 selling papes. Extra, extra, Chicago record salesman, hunted by police in connection with, with Dead Girl. Uh, uh, and Steve Martin's like, oh! Uh, no, he doesn't sound like a ghost yet, he's not dead yet. And that's all, it's all just sad from this point. Um, their relationship starts to fall apart. They're living in like a shitty one-room apartment that they cannot afford. This is the first time in the film where the realistic or in a musical number that something has felt small or cramped. Mm. The universe has been wide open until this moment where they're suddenly they're in a cage. Yeah. In order to stop their fighting and getting mad at each other, they decide to leave the city and like head out on the road, try and find somewhere where she won't have to be a prostitute. He won't be hunted by the police. Yeah, and uh, they'll be away from his bitch it, wife. It, it, it's the beginning of a Goddard film mm. and <laughs> the end of a Steve Martin one. Yeah, uh, they like drive off into the night. I mean, at one point, Arthur thinks he sees a black cat run across the road, and that's a black cat, not the Michael Hunter Manhunter film Black Hat. Yeah, and he takes that as a bad omen and swerves off the road. And has a and it, like has a breakdown, and then there is a sorry. So, because mm. just to be clear, if you were to see mm. Black Hat, that's a good omen. Yeah, for for having a good time watching the film Black Hat. Absolutely. Yeah. If if you see a Blu-ray lying on the ground, make sure you pick it up. Unless it's like you're at someone's house, sure. you know, and then you just stamp but- on it and say, "No, only I may have the Black Hat." And then when they're angry, you strap magazines to yourself and fight them with a screwdriver, like in the incredible film Black Hat. <laughs> 
it, it, like a uh, blackhead episode coming later this year. Yeah, I look forward to it. Unless uh, we just totally flip and do Claire Denis Villeneuve, yeah. or, 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 or if we stop being friends. <laughs> I mean, what would that take? Oh, who can tell? Oh, I think it, like if one of us had gone real deep on the Snyder cut. <laughs> You know, and the other person being like, I guess it's fine. Yeah. I think that could have escalated to, like, comic physical violence. Do you know what I mean? But apart from that, you know, I feel like the greatest tension between us was me calling Singing in the Rain and. Yeah. And I feel like that our friendship can survive that. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, the, the, for, for now, to be clear, time changes everything. Time. What's it? An, an irreversible time destroys everything. Mm. Uh, Irreversible episode never coming. No. I apologize, pennies from heaven. Yeah, so Arthur like swerves off the road and starts like having a breakdown, and then there is a scene shot like entirely in the darkness of his car, and that's one of the points where like, oh yeah, this movie was shot by Gordon Willis. Yeah, and like we haven't really touched on it so far, but this is such a Gordon Willis film. Yeah, incredibly beautiful, amazing use of shadow. There's like so much like beautiful out of focus neon signs in the background. Like it's, everything feels like so richly textural. Oh, it's so it, it's beautiful. It feels like uh, uh, one of the seeds that grows into the aesthetic to speak of Michael mm. Hunter Manhunter again uh, of Thief. Sure, another yeah. film you should see, which is all like sparks in the darkness and yeah. neon off hoods. This this very much feels like the beginning of what turns into that. So Eileen is basically fed up with him uh, fucking moping and, and she gets out of the car to leave. He gets out and runs after her and she basically tells him, I will take you back and I will stay with you as long as you have a positive attitude. You know, like as long as you don't let the world get you down, I will stick with you. And to me, this feels like Michael Stuhlberg at the end of Shelley being like, oh, great work on yeah. the novel. I have some notes, by the way. You know, it's, I have some thoughts, of course. Yeah, yeah. It is just like, oh, dude, you just, the, this bucket of hope had a trickle left in it and you just kicked a hole in it, you bastard. Yeah, that seems to like totally revitalize Arthur and they go and have sex in the backseat of a car. And then the next morning, they're trying to leave, but the car won't start. And two uh, police officers on motorcycles come up behind them. And again, there's another fucking great shot. Of like Arthur in the back of a shot, he is at the front of the car, and then Eileen is standing by the passenger side door with the rear door open. Mm. And so you have, you have these like three levels of of like Arthur in the back of a shot, Bernadette Peters, who you are seeing through the window, and then kind of like superimposed over her face in in the like reflection of a window, you see the police officers walking towards them. Again, just like an an incredible shot. And then the police officers realize who he is, and they chase him down. He's taken to jail. And uh, then it becomes Dancer in the Dark, where a film ends with someone singing as they are about to be executed uh, yeah, with, uh, with, 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 with opposite feelings, right? Mm. The ending of uh, Dancer in the Dark is one uh, of the saddest things I've seen in film. Uh, Björk, uh, I'm a staunch supporter yeah. of her as a performer but when i went into dancer in the dark i was aware of her but not a fan mm. and, and that those ending moments of her singing in pain at the injustice uh, uh as a like alternate view of this steve martin singing pennies from heaven yeah. as an act of both like faith and pity well yeah and and, and it's like the first time it, and yeah and it's the first time that someone is actually singing not just lip syncing yeah and the song no longer sounds like it is no longer so hopeful and he, mm. he and he, he is kind of like 
hawk singing it, you know, faltering in like very, very, very like hesitant way. Well, there's very much a vibe of, uh, you know, scary child singing classic song in horror trailer sure, to yeah. it. But, but that hadn't happened yet. Yeah. But it is like, it, it felt like, yeah, tragic is the word, right? It, 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 but it is this almost exactly the same effect as that bit of dancer in the dark. And the feeling is similar, but the underlying thing, and like in Dancer and Dark, you're like, we crush people and that's heartbreaking. And in this, you're like, no one deserves to die. Everyone yeah. deserves to have faith. We, no, everyone deserves to have hope. Everyone deserves to have faith. They just shouldn't. You, you know where I stand on this, Finn. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it should be criminalized. Um, uh, it is, it is a, it's a compliment to both, and it is... And he's looking right at you. First yeah. time, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe walking in his dance number, p- p- like p- a, like possibly. a little like a wolf. Well, that's what he is like in that dance number. But it is, um, yeah, it's one of those magical combinations of picture, sound, uh, performance, color, scenario, company, hmm. th- where you are like. Yeah, this is why we. That is why we don't just make TV. This is why we don't just read comics. This is the point of film. Is this? Yeah, and 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 then, and yeah, and, and then and then because this is still a Hollywood musical, it 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 has a it has a like like a sort of like magical realist escape at the end. Yeah, where like Titanic, mm, it pulls yeah, the yeah. same trick as Titanic. Where Arthur and Eileen run to each other through the streets. And Eileen says to him, I thought they were going to kill you. And then he says, well, the story had to have a happy ending. And like normally, I don't like that kind of shit because so often it's just, and you know, this is a picadillo of mine for what will immediately become an obvious reason. It's a self-hatred thing because normally in those situations, what it's doing is a writer, it's a writer throwing up their hands, or in this case writers, and being like, I just need to chuck the fucking yeah. theme in. I just, come on, let's just get meta for a moment just so we can get, uh, I don't want to work on this bit. But in this, it's not revealing anything about the film. It is underlying how the the noxiousness of that character survives even his own death. Mm. Yeah, and, and, then that, and then that leads into the last musical number where, like, another 250 chorus girls, like, march through the streets of Chicago. Uh, 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 we got to say it, it's the catchphrase, the greatest special effect is loads of people, yeah. and it does, it is like, it's not like a thousand, but it's like three, four hundred, right? It, it, it is, it yeah, is a it, mess. It is, it is a lot. And, like, again, they do a bunch of incredible Busby Berkeley shit, mm-hmm. and, yeah, the, like, way that Ross and Potter and Willis, like, understand how different sorts of musicals look and function mm. so well. is so expertly deployed. They know the perfect mix mm. of all those elements. They're, they're Ross's expertise in, the, in, the, in, the, in how to shoot the kind of things Dennis Potter knows how to write. Yeah. And these two cast members deploying their skills that we've seen used for other things elsewhere into this. It is just... Uh, uh, it's like, uh, do you remember what I said about the wall? The wall feels so complete, and it, which seems insane because they all hated each other. Uh, uh, this feels like that without them all hating each other. I think mm. you know. Yeah, and so um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I would, uh, uh, yeah, and I would uh, like to end us talking about pennies from heaven with uh, 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 
with uh, with an excerpt from uh, um, with an excerpt from uh, Pauline Kael's original 1981 review of the movie. Pennies from Heaven is the most emotional movie musical I've ever seen. It's a stylized mythology of a depression which uses the popular songs of a period as expressions of people's deepest longings for sex, for romance, for money, for a good time. When the characters can't say how they feel, they evoke the songs. They open their mouths, and the voices on hit records come out of them. And as they lip-sync the lyrics, their obsessed eyes are burning bright, their souls are in those voices, and they see themselves dancing just like the stars in the movie musicals. Despite its use of Brechtian devices, Pennies from Heaven doesn't allow you to distance yourself. You are thrust into the characters' emotional extremes. You are right in front of a light that's shining from their eyes. I mean, you, Pauline Kael's a master, right? Yeah. And, and I agree with all of that. And I do want to finish the caveat, the ritual caveat that we do every time, is that, yeah, we, we've unpacked this like it's Pasternak. But it, all of these layers, it just, we clearly are so riveted by this film, we want to unpack it. We want to look at every uh, a piece of meat, every uh, ingredient in the sandwich. But the sandwich is delicious. Yes. Both of these films are just at or just under two hours. They're great ways to spend your time. Um, I think uh, uh, Pennies from Heaven is an incredibly sound film. Uh, yes. And I assume, Finn, where do you think Pennies from Heaven 1981 uh, uh, is shy or sound? Uh, I think it is sound. This is one of my favorite musicals. I love it so much, and I, and I find it more moving every time I see it. It is such a special film. The performances from Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters are incredible, and as I said, I wish there were a dozen movies that they started together. I really think I agree with Pauline Kael that like there is no other movie musical in which I feel the emotions as strongly as, as, I, as I feel these ones. Yeah, I don't... Uh, uh, having a more closer attachment and appreciation for the musical as an emotional genre rather like for you, I'm not calling you a musical, sure, hater, yeah. but you love them as spectacle, right? You yes. love the singing and the dancing. I, I wouldn't call that, but it's absolutely a unique and successful work. Thin. Yes. Where do you rank this of all the films we have seen for this podcast? Where falls pennies from heaven? Uh, I have it at uh, number 27 above Sancho the bailiff and below taxi driver. I have Pennies from Heaven at number 83. That is uh, above The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp and beneath La Dolce Vita by Federico Fellini. It is, this film is watching half good films and half bad films, and they're not always like that. Yeah. This is strongly in the good half. Yes. If I gave stars, four stars. Uh, and, and I think, like, th- I'm so turned around on this that I think if anyone really considered it, that was like my greatest crime, right? Like I just kind of uh, let it happen in my mind more than anything else. But if I had taken the time to to write a review of it, it would have to come out positive, you know, sure, three, yeah. four stars. And I'm I'm so sure of that that I have one, two, three. Yeah, I've got five more vials of this drug that cu- cuts my life in half. I'm mm-hmm. currently. Uh, uh, I've got five more years left to live. Looking forward to 2027 when uh, uh, I presume a Dev Patel second Bond film comes out, mm. you know, uh, licensed to just be hot as shit. Yeah, it's called licensed to fuck. 
I want to live. <laughs> I don't think I could just look down at my phone at Letterboxd and see a Nick. Oh, God. Oh, McCain, he's done it again. I have two and a half years to live. Oh, and, no. You know, a Fixus on Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. They gave Pennies from Heaven 1981 half a star. Oh, man. Saying, you're not the one who just lost two and a half years of my life. I could have performed two year-long durational performance artworks in that time. Yeah, it's gone you now. Could have. I have to die before probably the Fast and Furious series is finished. <laughs> I'll never see what happens with those fantastic beasts. <laughs> the cars. Anyway, Aphexus says, I don't even have the words to describe this film. Full stop. And then that's the end of the review. Ha ha ha. It's- nice one, Yufa. Worth, worth losing two and a half years over. It's just a big mix of things that were put together, hoping to make something good. <clears throat> the idea of using old songs as material and actors just lip syncing to them isn't as amazing as this fella thought it would be. Coupled with the fact that from the get go, the protagonist who is supposed to come off as charming is the nope. worst scum in the world. In the first five minutes, he tries to essay sexually assault yep. someone. Amazing comedy. Am I right? No, <clears throat> the story spirals into some bad shit. And while I get the point also, I don't care. These characters were so despicable or bland, I just watched for the sake of finishing it. Also, all caps, viewing just the musical sequences while they were very well organized. <laughs> it's what I say when I go to my kids' dance recitals. Oh, you were all on stage at the right time. And stylized, they feel unnatural and forced into the film. Yes. And that correct. should be the case. The answer to your review, Aphexus, is yes. Please engage with cinema. Okay. Aphexus. I'm looking at their top four. Now, these four, it's an interesting group of films to have as your four favorites. And I'm so sure that you can guess all of that you won't guess them. Okay, great. Yeah. If you successfully guess them, you know, like, if you successfully guess them, you know, in a reasonable amount of time, I will inject myself with one of these. That's how little confidence with you is. You're about, like, if you get this right, you're going to take a year and a quarter off my life, okay? Okay, well, I have always wanted to do that. So this first one, famous 90s indie film, often treated as the feature debut, but isn't. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, so it's not not Reservoir Dogs or Clerks. Well, okay, uh, 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 it's not, it's not Clerks. Uh, because all of his work before that was was shorts or abandoned. Mm. Like Reservoir Dogs, I would debatably, because he did shoot that feature, it's just that the film was fucked, his right. previous film. But this is not either mm. of those, but you are thinking around the right time. Okay, so it is, it is like early 90s rather than late 90s. Yes. Okay, so it's not The Sixth Sense. No. Yeah. They had been working before their first film. It is a live music Film, it's Mm. like a film, you know what I mean. It's a concert film, that's the word. Uh, And and made a couple of prominent shorts, and then this. So, do you know what I'm saying? It feels like their their debut, but it's not. Okay. Okay. Made made a couple of prominent shorts. Yeah. Made a concert film. Uh, you would you it is entirely uh, like fellas it is entirely likely that you even though he is like one of your guys don't know about this concert film 
it's it's like it is this guy's made so many films that there are many that you just don't know about even if you love his work okay um i feel like all of that is massive clues rian johnson no there's no, yeah, that's it, too late yeah yeah mm-hmm. no, yeah his 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 concert film isn't until like 2009 um this concert film came came out in 1985 okay it's not it's not still making sense no Jonathan Demi, <laughs> people were like, yeah, Philadelphia is great. Do you know it's his debut? Well, no, his, de- his debut was Science of the Lambs. I mean, I mean Philadelphia mm, was... That, I, I hear that, that it was like American History X and Jodie Foster really took over directing <laughs> in the cutting room. What is this era of directors? Name some. You've said Kevin Smith. You've said Tarantino. Who else is in that generation? Oh, God, who's a... And who is your guy? And makes lots of films. He had one this year. He has one last year. Uh, okay. You just watched two of his films, or one? Is it Herbert Ross? No, no, no. Okay. no. Uh, what? What did you watch recently that is that is either two films or one? God, not this is not a trick it question. It feels like a trick question. No, no, no. I'm not even. I wouldn't even say like Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is three short films. Mm. I would call that one film. Sure. We're in a Kill Bill situation, is what we're talking about there. This was supposed mm. to be the easy one. Yeah. Okay. This director's name is alliterative. Alan Arkin. This film is about three things. The sex lies in videotape. You are oh, right. It is, yeah, it is very embarrassing it took yes, you that it long. Is. So I get to live for two and a half years. Yeah, good, good for you. <clears throat> Next on this list is The Last Film by a Great. Last is in most recent or last is in they died after it? They died very soon after it. Okay. Um, well, technic- like the myth is they delivered it, then they died. Uh, Eyes Wide Shut. That's correct. Yeah. And the next one is another fucking film. Fight Club. Nah, that, that, I'd say that was another fighting film. This is another fucking film. Love. Uh, after Eyes Wide Shut. You're not a million miles off. Nymphomaniac. Part two. Correct. <laughs> mm, and the fire is so... God, I, I cannot imagine someone who, 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 who fucking thinks that... Pennies from Heaven is too misogynistic, but, but loves Nymphomaniac Part 2. I have to tell you, we've Jesus. buried the lead, because in you getting too correct so quickly, is, we have cut my life by half down to one and a quarter years, yep. and then half again down to, uh, okay, uh, two thirds of a year. So this last one is what it all rests on. Okay. Uh, it is an Iranian film by... One of the two guys. Okay, is is it is it by Kiristami? No. Is it is it by Mosse Mapabov? No. Escafa yeah, Fahadi uh, uh, is Escafa who you're thinking. Fahadi, yeah. yeah. Um, it has two words in the title and it starts with a or the just to give you absolutely no helpful clues. Is it the salesman one? No. I would say that internationally this is the one he made his name on. Oh. And Salesman was the follow-up, and a hero is obviously uh, Jeffrey Bezos being like, let's commission him to make a film about the desperation of the poor. And i got to tell you, there is no greater irony. No, okay, the beginning of the Isaac Asimov Foundation series, which is about empires getting too big, mm. uh, starting with an Apple TV product, uh, Apple Presents is pretty ironic, but a hero starting with the dum 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 Amazon original thing 
is so ironic it physically pains you uh, uh i cannot remember what what the what the farhadi film is yeah it's called a separation oh fuck. yeah yeah yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. no no, no it, but it's like yeah that one right, you know that yes, one yes. you just wouldn't see it so i get to live for eight months <laughs> Con- hooray congratulations uh oh what will i do with that time what a question do you want know another question finn hmm? Where can people find you online? Uh, who gives a shit? You can find the show on Twitter at ShiteSoundPod, or you can email us at ShiteSoundPod at gmail.com. Why not check out our website? It is at ShiteAndSound.com. If you like what I do, uh, I am at Youthalives, U-T-H-E-R-L-I-V-E-S, on all your various social media platforms. Uh, the artist is more present in some than others. Uh if you're looking for more of my opinions on stuff, starting up soon again is my newsletter, reviews letter, The Dean's List, weekly on Saturdays. Sign up for that at bit.ly slash youthalives. I have two other podcasts. One is called The Witching Hours. It's an eerie audio anthology. And the other is called The Slow Path, where me and my partner, Briar, watch Doctor Who. For the next eight months. Yeah, until we die. Oh, yeah. At least I won't. We're coming out. We're in season two of the 1963 series, and that's good because there's only two lost episodes. But in about eight months, we would be hitting the run from, like, Galaxy 4 onwards, where it's just animations or recons. So if anything, then thank you. I'm thankful that I don't have to watch three reconstructions of racist Doctor Who adventure, the Celestial Toymaker. Well, that's that's that's... That's why I did it. I do also want to stress for any Doctor Who fans that are listening, I also hate the Celestial Toymaker because it's boring. It's racist and shit, as opposed to the Talons of Wing Chiang, which is which is very racist, but good. <laughs> like Isle of Dogs. Uh, what are we watching next week? Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, our uh, last Carl Theodore Dreyer movie. Yeah. And uh, with that, we're watching... Which Finder General starring Vincent Price, our first Vincent Price movie. Yeah. Is it worth the price? We recorded that episode like two weeks ago. So let me just say it is worth the price and I am passionate. See you next week. If you like the show, tell your friends. Sure. I know this is what I'm going to say is a three hour, maybe three and a half hour long episode in our defense. This recording has just passed six hours, 10 minutes. <laughs> Uh, but when you get passionate about something like two good films, I think if you like this, I think you know other people who will like things like a podcast like this. Support really means everything. We don't have a marketing budget. We're an acquired taste, and uh, it'd be great if more people acquired it. Movies are good. Even bad ones. Go, Go watch them.
photography. Yeah. Sexualized and videotape. Yeah, so the idea of porn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sexualized and videotape. It was then codified by Irving Welshin's book sequel to Trainspotting Porno. And then general working malaise was codified by Irving Welsh's later book, If You Hate School, You'll Love Work, which is a great title. But anyway. Really don't understand why you're giving all credit to, to fucking Irving when, like, The Cure had already made their album pornography by that point. And clearly, The Cure of the inventors of pornography. God damn it. Yeah. I mean, in this song, Pictures of You, they invented sexting. <laughs> Right and so 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 and so